This episode brought to you by the following patrons. Danielle Damasaurus, Taco Cat, the number Jeff, Awesome Possum Blossom, Amy, Matthew, William, Brandon, Dave, Scott, Tristan, Kate, Isaac, Ori, Karun, Eddie, and Nick B. And all the patrons want you to know that you're loved, you're listened to, and you're a valuable member of this awesome Horror Virgin community. And if you want to hang out with us, do so in the Facebook group and or Discord servers. All right, let's maybe talk about something funny. Uh, it's not going to be this movie. <laughs> Who's ready to talk about trauma? Thank you for tuning in to Horror Virgin. I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. And I'm your Horror Virgin, Todd, which means I don't like scary movies, but you guys make me watch them. And this week, the listeners made us watch... Dr. Sleep. So was this the first time either of you had seen this movie before? No. No. Oh, really? Okay. It was it was clearly my first time. But what, what were your first impressions of it when you first saw it? I heard really good things about the director's cut. So I uh, I purchased the director's cut. Oh, did you? Yeah, back it was like during COVID. And like nothing was coming out. So I like wanted to like dig in like Oh yeah. During COVID with the like lull in movies that were coming out, getting a three hour director's cut would feel like you just found a podcast you can binge. You know, you'd be oh, like, right. yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, oh man, I, I think I have complicated feelings about the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. Although I liked it better this time. Yeah, well, I did the theatrical cut this time, which I think I liked it. I liked the director's cut, but it's like it's not The Shining. I, I like The Shining better. That's funny. I like this much better than The Shining. I think The Shining scarier. It absolutely is. I think this is an interesting film, but like. And I and I read a little bit, and I'm sure Paige is going to talk so much about this, but it's like, it doesn't know if it's a sequel of the movie or the book. Yes. And you can feel the weirdness from that. And I, and I like, also, I don't, the shine eaters or whatever, like the knot. Uh, the, the true knot. Yeah, the, the true, true knot. knot. That's my least favorite part. Yeah. I don't know about them. I, I love Ewan McGregor or whatever. I like Ewan McGregor a lot as well. And I think he does a great job in this movie. And I really love like the AA aspect of it. The like overcoming addiction aspect of it. And yeah. how those sort of demons from your past can always come back to haunt you. Like at the end of this movie, when he is struggling to not drink, like I get that. Like that is something that people that struggle with addictions of any kind still struggle with. Even if they've beat it for the past eight years, it's still a daily struggle for people that struggle with that whether it's alcoholism or opioids or sex right, right, or whatever right. the addiction is yeah and then like half the movie the shine is like a metaphor from like the trauma and the things that make you you and like yeah. you shouldn't be ashamed of it and you need to integrate it into who you are and overcome trauma and all that and like and like not drink to not feel it and things like and like a really pretty cool metaphor yeah until the yeah. true knot comes in and then i'm like so they eat trauma to live forever and then like i was like i don't understand how this makes sense in the rest of the metaphor yeah th this is my biggest problem with this movie and book so i saw this in theaters this was i think this must have been one of the last things i saw before covid yeah it came out 2020 yeah. So it probably was. Jake and I went to go see it because he had read the book and I was reading the book at the time. And the true knot is my problem with it because, and it's a, it's a source material thing too. So it's like, for me, it's a problem in the book and the movie, although they're very, very different in the book. Oh, are they? I'll talk about it in fun facts. I kept okay. almost all of it to fun facts 
so that we can get through the movie and then go through the differences. Yeah, it's a long movie, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about what was in the director's cut, what wasn't, because Mikey and you have seen it. What I will say is I liked it a lot better this time, probably because I knew what was coming. But for me, this movie is so challenging because... I would say 60% of this movie is so well done and so fantastic that I'm literally crying through it. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. And then 40% of it is some American horror story carnival season garbage that I hate with a passion. <laughs> and and it is the same in the book in a way where like Stephen King has this amazing ability to write characters and scenarios that are so grounded in an emotional realism that you connect with them Mm -hmm. and you care about them and that's where some of his best work is like i think about the kids in it where like you understand where all those kids are coming from or even pet cemetery where you're like i understand why a parent would do anything to bring a child back that all makes sense but you don't think it has sort of a carnival vibe to it as well with pennywise like I feel like Stephen King is really, really good at the character part, but also a lot of his books sort of feel like they have an element of them that is like, oh, this feels sort of incongruous to what the characters are actually doing. I do feel like he always needs an editor. Yes. More more than he has. <laughs> However, in it, one of the things that keeps me in it and doesn't disconnect me as much as this story does is that a lot of the supernatural elements are still related to the kids fears yeah it's true and so that kind of keeps it going for me in this movie i feel like we have a beautifully structured interesting story where you have someone dealing with past trauma dealing with addiction dealing with a parent's addiction that in some ways is still exerting itself on their lives through their trauma. Yeah. And all of these things that are scary enough in and of themselves that you could so easily have taken a much subtler hand with the supernatural aspects of this story, and it would have been scarier but also moving. I feel like there was no way to make this as scary as The Shining. I feel like it is strange to try and bridge the gap between the movie and the book because this story is very much a sequel to the book, not the movie. But the Kubrick movie is so ubiquitous. It is such a cultural touchstone. You could not make this movie without addressing it, I think. And I think that's the problem. I listened to a lot of interviews with Flanagan before the movie came out, like as it was coming out. Yeah. And he mentions that the true knot was one of the most difficult things to kind of bring to life on film. And I still don't think they succeeded. And I don't really like it in the book either. And so it's a tough one for me. If you're going to have a villain that like motivates them to do some stuff, I think instead mm-hmm. of like a group with a ba- like this full backstory and like weirdness and because like, they go to a great lengths to describe their like the group, the true knots culture and like all their stuff and all. But that's the thing. They kind of don't. We don't learn anything about them in this movie. The book, we find out a little bit more, but it kind of treats us in the movie as if we already know. Well, I, I don't think you need a villain like that. I think you, you yeah. could have just done one person with Shine who's like a serial killer version of Danny. I mean, that is essentially what the true knot is. All of them shine in some way, right? Yes. But, and- I, but I mean, instead of having like a family thing, just have like a scary ass serial killer you know nothing about coming for you. 
psychically and physically. I mean, that's Rose in this movie. That, I mean, that is Rose the Hat. Yeah. Except, except, except keep more mystery. You know what I mean? Like no, no scenes of them like having conversations and like grilling out. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't need <laughs> like that. Grilling out. For a... <laughs> but, he, Mikey, Mikey is absolutely right because it ends up as this kind of spread out thing where it's almost like we're supposed to invest our time and energy for this story into that group as if it's going to be a thing and like that's equally as important as Danny's story and it's fucking not and honestly Rose is the only important one why isn't it just Rose and why do we immediately see who she is Mikey's absolutely right if this was a more of like a mystery story and we don't know who's killing people and then they eventually have like have to find out who it is and have a showdown with her. That makes so much more sense to me. Now, is that the way the book is? Like, it makes sense. To absolutely me that they were, not. Yeah, yeah. So no. they were just they were just keeping it the way the book is. That makes sense. We're, this is still a Stephen King property. This was gonna fall apart in the third act. Come on, guys. <laughs> well, and, and this is a hot take about Stephen King right there, Mikey. Not an uncorrect take, but a hot. I, take. I love his stories more based. So, like, Mr. Mercedes is probably, like, one of my favorite books of his. I think, for me, it's it's Green Mile. And I think Green Mile is the perfect, uh, like, the perfect grounded human story that has very subtle supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's when he lets the supernatural, it's, it's almost like he gets excited about it. And so he writes all this stuff, and you're like, you're missing the point of your own story somehow <laughs> of, like, Honestly, it's so much more interesting to deal with Danny and his struggles Mm -hmm. and his relationship with Abra, which makes so much more sense in the book. And I will talk about it at the end because they cut a huge, very important, at least to me, story chunk out of the story in the movie. But like the amount of time spent on these characters that I don't have an emotional investment in to me is wasted in this film. I liked it. And I liked the uh I liked the true knot a lot. I liked that you had like okay, so a lot of people have the shining or the sh- they shine, right? And then right. what happens if some are good and what happens if a group is bad? And that is the true knot. Like you have a group of people who shined and figured out that if you make things real steamy by murdering someone while they're scared, you can live a lot longer. Right. So that they just like Stephen King just took that aspect to it's like mm-hmm. all right, let's take that thought and dial it up to ten, and then that is the true knot. I liked it a lot. I thought it was cool. I'm gonna stop you right there. If we're watching a horror movie <laughs> and Todd comes out and is like, I really like this part about the villain and like it's oh. not a horror movie. Exactly. I told Mikey that last night when we were hanging out. I don't think this is a horror movie. I think it's a psychological thriller, which I am on board for. I love those. So that just is more ammunition for our side of the argument. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong, Mike. Here's my argument against that. Because I do think, A, the book demonstrates it a lot better of they are also people who shine. They just shine dark. That's very clear in the movie, too. Like, that's extremely clear in the movie. It's way more clear in the book. Because in the movie, their shines are depicted as different. Because in the movie, Danny and Abra can do things. And that's kind of the only version of shine we see. It's very similar to Halloran's. By the way, in the book, there's a reason for that. But we'll get to it in fun facts. But the true knot seems to have unique skills amongst their shine. Yeah, they have like a pusher. They have someone who's like a scout or I think they call him a crow. Right. Like they all have titles, right? I felt like that those were people who just specialized in one aspect or were particularly gifted at 
an aspect of shining. Like the X-Men. Yeah, I didn't need evil X-Men. But that is never something we've seen in the mythology before. Yeah, but we've also never seen the true knot in the mythology before. Like, you can't get hung up on stuff like that. Here's why. It's a sequel. (laughs) Like, we have established rules from The Shining, both book and film. Sure. Of how Shining works and what it is. Now, granted, they are nebulous and they are linked to a greater Stephen King narrative throughout books and they apply other places. But the true knot is a new invention. So it's almost like you're asking us to take something that we know from a property that is so famous that everyone fucking knows it like the back of their hand. Yeah. Treat it in a completely different way than we have ever treated it before. But also it's like the shining, the first movie and book Danny's psychic ability isn't a big part of the story. It's just, it just gets hollering to come up to the, to the resort. No, it is a bigger part of the story in the book. And in Dr. Sleep, the book, it factors in, I, I just got to fucking talk about it. Cause uh, otherwise I'll talk circles around it. So in the book, you find out Abra's family is a little bit different in the book where she has lost a parent and she is largely raised by her grandmother who doesn't shine. But you find out from her grandmother that Abra is actually the daughter of Jack Torrance's illegitimate child. What? Yes. Oh, he really is Uncle Danny. Yes. So Jack Torrance had an affair with a student because remember he was a teacher. And also not a good guy. That's in the book. And his daughter from that affair or basically like the, the daughter of that affair is Abra. So the student was Abra's mother. So he he is quote it's technically cousin stepbrother Danny, Danny. Right, right, right. Uncle Danny. Anyway, so that's kind of the relation there. But what that wow. means, okay. if you think about it, is that shining is not just lucky. Shining is potentially past through Oh, it's genes. genetic. It's genetic. Sure. Which means that Jack shined. I mean, I feel like that sort of fits with the narrative, too, because a lot of and maybe this is not correct. Mikey might have to correct me on this. But from what I understand of addiction, a lot of it is hereditary. Like if your if your parents were alcoholics, it's more likely that you'll be an alcoholic. Well, and it's probably also because you were around it. Yeah, there's factors. There's there's genetic predisposition and environmental factors of being around addiction. And then so like you learn that that is I mean, you see it very well illustrated in this movie. Yeah. Yes. Like that's your coping skill. Like that's right. his coat. That was your parents' coping skill. You learned that when you have a bad day, you drink. There's like there's right. environmental and genetic factors. So it's both. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it still fits with the narrative of it's passed down. Absolutely. But think about this this way, because we find out in the movie it talks about this, in the book it talks about it a lot more. The reason the Overlook haunts Danny is because it could sense him while he was there. But what we also know is it haunted Jack. So. There's a question of like, did Jack drink because he had been haunted by The Shining the whole time? Oh, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So like, that's a really interesting element that's not fully explained in the movie. I feel like it's alluded to in the movie because when he's at the bartender scene in Dr. Sleep, yeah. that is him addressing the addiction that his father failed to beat and that he is deciding in that moment that he will not succumb to. So it's not directly addressed. And I didn't know that going into this. I'm just having this thought now because yeah. of, of what you said. But I do feel like they nod to that. Although someone like me who's never read the book and has only watched The Shining and I've never read either, I didn't pick up on that and tell you what you just said. Right. But I feel like they do allude to it, which I like. Like what you just said made me appreciate that scene more. Right. And and it is 
super interesting that his dad is the one last ghost that he didn't put in a box like that. That yeah. whole aspect of it is interesting. But all of that is. Oof, sorry, that just like that like hit me. What you just said fucking hit me a little bit. Oh, damn. All of that aspect of it. And that's the part of the movie I like is me too. him grappling with his father's demons, essentially. So much. Yeah, that's, that's what made me cry so much. In this movie. But oh, I saw <laughs> yeah, I sobbed through oh, huge sections man. of this movie. Yeah. But that's why I don't like the true knot. Because the true knot is bullshit up against that level of interesting emotional depth that we can identify with as humans. I understand what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree, but that's the way, like, I don't blame Flanagan for that. Like, that is the source material he had to put that on screen. Like, you know, it is what it is. So I sort of am very forgiving of stuff like that because... I, I realize that there needs to be a villain. I don't care if they're the shine X-Men, but like it's whatever, you know? Well, no, I know. Uh, what what did bother me is that they kill almost every one of them, literally all but two of them, in like five minutes at a trap they set. Like that's because it's completely different in the book. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense because you gotta do it quickly. Yeah. I mean, and I say quickly, this movie theatrical cuts two and a half hours, directors cut three hours, so nothing's yeah. done super quickly. But I'm sure Doctor Sleep is a super long book just because Stephen King tends to write that way yeah that's what i mean when i say i have a problem with the source material and this movie just because it has to pull from it i don't blame flanagan for that uh i am frustrated with the actual story itself yeah that he had to pull from i do question some of the decisions to marry the movie and the book even though and I know some people disagree with this heartily and whatever. I love the Kubrick movie. Like, love it. Even though it does change the endings. Uh, I get it. Uh, But I do feel like in this movie, at least, Danny gets that redemptive ending. Yeah. It gives him the ending of the book, The Shining. No, he absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. Which I I like. I've never read the book, so I honestly don't know to what you're referencing because I've only seen the movies. We talked about it in our episode. I know, but that was so long ago, I can't remember. (laughs) Jack Torrance blows up the overlook to save his family yes there's a reason that's included in the book it's because and you guys didn't have me on your original shining episode so now you have to hear this fun fact uh the shining (laughs) is based on the stanley hotel and it was one of the first large hotels of its kind and at the time electric light was not as normalized as it is now so they actually had gas lighting throughout the hotel wow okay and As a result of that, there was a huge explosion that actually killed some uh, hotel employees. Oh, man. And the hotel is believed to have been haunted by those employees. And Stephen King stayed at the hotel, and it then inspired him to write The Shining. Okay. That's why the boiler room plays such a big part in the book. So the ending in this movie is completely different from the ending in the book. The second half of this movie is completely different from the book. Probably why I liked it so much. (laughs) Here's the thing. Not better, just different. Sure, sure, sure. That's fair. I do not know and will never know what happens in the book outside of what you tell me during this episode because I am super dyslexic and hate reading the written word and will never read any of these books. I I mean, I'll go through it. It's equally frustrating for different reasons well i mean i at least think we should touch on it so like people know what the differences are you know the one thing i wish and um i know i just said i didn't read the book but for joke purposes let's just say i did i really wish they had kept the line at the end of the book where abra says to her mom i see dan people 
Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, let's just get into it so we can like actually talk about the movie as we're talking about the plot of the movie. Okay, so we open on the same music from The Shining. There are score kind of motifs that occurred in The Shining film that occur here, and this is one of them. I mean, the, but the music in The Shining is really good, so I'm glad it's they so reincorporated good. it. Like the ba 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 ba. It's yep, so yep. good and it's so dramatic. When they're going yep. back up to the Overlook in this movie and they're playing that again, oh. and they do the the exact same helicopter yep. shot, yeah. it's just at night. Yep. Yeah, it's so so good. Like as someone who loves The Shining, yeah. like the movie, there is a lot in this movie that I really like to see kind of yeah. recreated, and it's very cool and. It's really only the true knots that I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see Flanagan remake The Shining, to be honest with you. I love Flanagan as a filmmaker. I think he's so good. I don't think he's right for The Shining. Oof. Not that he's a bad filmmaker, but somebody put a poll up in the group. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, I saw that too. I hardcore voted Ari Aster. I want to see Ari Aster make The Shining. Yeah, I'd rather it not be super boring. Um, (laughs) You think boring... The Shining is meant to be uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's bored until like, he's like, go and put the X-Men in this horror film. <laughs> That's yeah. Stephen King. That's not Flanagan. That's not fair. Nope. <laughs> you only like it when it's not a horror film. The Shining is a horror. It I is. want a horror. And this is classified as horror. Like this Dr. Sleep is. And I would disagree with that. I don't think it is. Yeah. It's not scary. It's not. Yeah. You got to do better than child murder to get to us. <laughs> Child murder, that's Mikey's day to dick. I have notes on that from the book when we get to it. Okay. I would go Ari Aster. I would love to see Ari Aster remake us. Someone also said Jennifer Kent, who did the Babadook. She would probably do a good job, too. That would also be good, yeah. I don't understand why they murdered all the people so quick. Why didn't they keep them and torture them and then, like, slowly fill their canisters up? Supposedly, that's an option, but you don't get as much steam that way. Uh... Like, if you can get it all in one fell swoop, you get a lot more, allegedly. Gotcha. Anyway, so we get an aerial shot of the forest. Yeah. Uh, We see a title card that says Florida 1980, and we see a little girl coming out of her camper, and she walks down by the water. It looks like a lake. Yeah. Um, And Rose is sitting near the water, and she gives her kind of a flower. She does some tricks with her hat, and the girl starts to get a little suspicious. She hears a twig snap, and she sees other members of the True Knot show up. Man, those cuts from Rose doing the magic trick with Violet, who's that little girl, to yep. the other people in her true not group, like slowly be like quickly being there and then being closer and then being closer and closer. I was like, oh, some bad shit's about to go down. Yep. So she grabs her and says, You're a special little thing, aren't you? And we cut away. Yeah. But you know something bad happened. Well, I think you even hear like a disembodied scream as they cut to like yeah, oh, yeah, you're like, cut. Oh, oh, she's fully dead. And you yep. see the true not like sort of swarm her like they're zo- not, they're not zombies, but like they're zombies. They're, they're like vampires. They're, they are more vampires. Yeah, they're just steamy vampires. No, they are specifically energy vampires. That's yeah. what they're okay. described as in the book. That's what I call Mikey because whenever I'm around him, I feel super drained. <laughs> wow. I just joke. I, I got to hang out with Mikey last night and I, I loved every minute of it. I unabashedly love and adore Mikey. Especially <laughs> that part when he like sliced you open and then like breathed in your essence from your mouth. Yeah, yeah. It was real steamy, guys. Or as I call it, second and a half base. <laughs> second and a half <laughs> base. So we cut to the Overlook. 
uh, with the wind howling outside, and we see Danny in the hallways with his big wheels. Yeah, and he's tracing the same impossible path from the film, where it's he can't technically drive the way he's driving. Yeah, it's, it's cool that they recreated that. It is definitely a nod to the original film, which I loved. Although, and I know that carpet is iconic, but it is ugly. I love that carpet. I know it's iconic. Oh, Everyone yeah. does. I saw so many like. COVID-19 masks with that carpet pattern on it, which I think is great. It's a great nod to like other people like, hey, I love horror. I love The Shining, but it's an ugly carpet. Here's the thing. If you really love The Shining, you get the carpet from room 237, the blue carpet. So Danny stops in front of 237. The door opens and out of the darkness, we just see an old woman start to come out of the shadows. And we know it's the woman from the tub. Yeah. It's Tub Girl. Do you guys know Tub Girl? Not personally. It's a very early internet meme. I remember it. Guys, everyone Google Tub Girl. Don't. Don't do it. Don't Don't do that. Don't Don't do do that. Don't do it. But you could tell it's the ghost from The Shining because she's so pruny from being in that tub all these years. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. So Danny wakes up. He's at home in his bed. He walks down the hall toward the bathroom and he hears water sloshing. He goes inside and there's someone in his tub at home. It's the old woman and the doorknob turns. He, he basically runs back outside, shuts the door. The doorknob starts to turn like she's trying to get out and he pees himself, which is very like he's a little kid who's scared and his mom finds him in the hallway. Yeah. This is where we find out that she, he hasn't talked since they left the overlook. Yeah. That checks out. Yeah, I know. Right. You're just like, I wouldn't either. Um, So it's been challenging. We cut to the next day, I'm guessing, where he's sitting on a bench next to Dick Halloran, uh, or the ghost of Dick Halloran, I should say. I do like that Mm -hmm. in this universe, like the Shining universe, if you will, dead people who shine also can like come back like old Jedi masters. And I was like, I'm on board for this. I can't wait till we see Yoda. Well, in the Shining book he doesn't die and so in dr sleep he's just still alive no shit okay okay yeah i just i just thought it was dick hollering at you (laughs) (laughs) that's what he was doing when he was trying to find danny's mom he's like hey danny where's your mom today what's the shining shaking at you halloran wise Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but so uh, Halloran is basically like yeah you never were much of a talker because i don't know if you remember the first movie where he like had that episode with Tony, and so he doesn't really talk much. He's like, first I'm movie. Tony. Yeah, <laughs> Danny isn't here right now, Mrs. Torrance. Uh, but they start talking in their minds. Yeah, and that's when he kind of opens up. So he then tells him, you know, how did it feel knowing that you weren't alone? Like, I bet that helped. And he says, someone someday you'll teach someone else. And then Danny says, I won't. I won't shine. It's dangerous. Yeah. She, basically, she found me and she'll come back till she gets me. And he says, well, the Overlook is full of old ghosts and there's no one there now. There's no one for them to feed on. And they were always like pictures in a book to me, but I didn't shine like you did. Yeah. And so you were like a million watt battery and it ate it up now if you also think of the fact that jack potentially shined although we know that the older you get the less you shine it is kind of an age thing so you had jack and danny yeah so that the overlook went into overdrive essentially and 
he tells him that what he can do is turn what they came for against them. And he tells the story of his grandfather, who was incredibly mean and abusive. And after he died, he kept coming back to him. And so his grandmother, who also shined, taught him a trick. And essentially, they lock him in a box in his mind. And you build the box yourself. You lock it away in there. But you essentially have to confront it and then lock it away. Yeah. You got to put a hole in that box and then put a ghost in that box. <laughs> put a ghost in that box. Put a ghost in that box, Danny. <laughs> Make them open the box. Not yet. And kill the scary lady. Uh, so <laughs> I do no, like that. I, I, Sorry, go ahead, Mikey. I like this as like a trauma metaphor. That's what of I was like, saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As like some people just like lock it in a box and never deal, try to deal with it ever again. Yeah. And yeah. so when he has to like open it all up at the Overlook, I think it, it, it's like, it was really poetic. It's one thing I like about that and one thing I don't like about that is he does finally address the trauma and addictions that he was struggling with. Like he takes them out of the compartmentalization that he's done his whole life, right? Right. And that helps him overcome Rose, the hat, mm -hmm. and then it also kills him. So, like, I don't love that part of the metaphor. Yeah. But I do like that once you address it, you can become more powerful. And if you can work through it through therapy and whatever, which is why I think therapy is so helpful and it literally saved my life. Everyone go to therapy. But, like, I don't like that immediately after he addresses his issues in that metaphor, he dies. Fun fact, he lives in the book. See, I like that. That makes sense. I, that makes more sense to me. Okay, I'm sorry. We'll get there. We'll get there. But I, I really yeah. like this metaphor too, Mike. Because that checks out. Because having children the age, like around the age that you went through trauma like triggers a lot of trauma of like, like when you were a child. And like him having to confront his trauma to like better be there for a child, I think is it also works. So yeah. I don't know. I really... I, I like that he lives in the book. Yeah. 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 It, for me, it, it works a little bit better if he lives... But that's the only part of the ending that works better. <laughs> like, it's the ending gets weird, but he does live. And that that's one thing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we hear his mom calling for him. And as he runs to meet her, we see a missing child poster for Violet, the girl who went missing in the beginning. Yeah. We cut to their house where they're watching Looney Tunes together on the couch. And Danny gets up and walks down the hall. And we hear the sound of his heartbeat as we do, which is really. They use that a lot in this movie, which I like they a lot. They use it a yeah. lot. Uh, but he walks to the bathroom and the old woman is there and he shuts the door and opens a box in the maze. His mind is the maze, yes. essentially, and locks her in it. Yeah. I like how you sort of hear her scream from the bathroom. Yes. As mm -hmm. she gets locked into the box. Yeah. Danny then wakes up as an adult. We cut to him waking up as an adult uh, in an unfamiliar house. And he's kind of piecing together what happened the night before. Oh, man. Where he was in the bar doing shots. He doesn't remember her name. She is unconscious, and it looks like she may have overdosed. Yeah, because there's, like, barf in the bed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we find out that it is New Jersey in 2011. Yeah. And we, as we get pieces of the night before, we, we see that he got in a fight and that she's doing lines off the table and all of his money is gone. He goes in her purse to take money out of her wallet, and as he goes to leave, he hears a toddler in the apartment. Oh, man. And he gives it some crackers and puts it in the bedroom with the mom. Here, just lay in this barf bed, baby. Yeah. And then Dick Haller just goes up. He's like, 
Danny, come on. Like, what are you You've doing? You've got to do better yeah. than this, Danny. And this is like, the worst haunting I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> a guilt haunting has to be yeah. so terrible. It's like being haunted by Jiminy Cricket. He's like, don't <laughs> don't steal from her, Danny. And he's like, she stole from me. Like, he, I think she bought the Coke with my money. She did. In, in the book, she specifically spent his entire paycheck on Coke. Yeah. This is one of those things that's, there's just tiny pieces of it that are different in the book that change it for me a little bit. Yeah. Because this was something when I f- first saw the movie and I hadn't gotten to this part in the book, I really struggled with because uh, the movie implies that she is dead and that by extension that child dies because nobody finds them. In the book, as the toddler comes out, he tries to reach for the cocaine thinking it's candy because the whole bag is still there. Yeah. And as Danny kind of like pulls him away from the cocaine, he sees that the kid is bruised and had been beaten very badly and shining wise can see that it was because of his uncle who was abusing him but Danny leaves anyway and doesn't tell anyone and the uncle ends up killing both the kid and the mom ah okay Danny while not directly responsible for killing them doesn't report it and that is kind of what potentially kills them it's sort of death through neglect yeah yeah which is kind of the same in this book, except that in this in this movie, his neglect directly kills them. Yeah. So uh, we cut to Long Island, New York, 2011, and we see a young blonde girl sitting in a movie theater. This is Andy, and she's meeting a much older man for a creepy date. Yeah, it's like a sugar daddy type, really sort of strange vibe. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Boy. And what we see is that Rose the Hat and one of the other True Knot the guy who is the crow, I think, right? The crow. Yeah. yeah. I think crow is his name. Oh, okay. Yeah, crow, okay. crow is his name. I thought crow was his title, but yeah, they do refer to him as crow. Yeah. It's very important to note that in the book, they don't really have special powers typically. So like crow is just his name and he's just another member of the true knot. There's not like a lot of, he. he's kind of her second in command here and that's not the case in the book, but also that's. In the book, that's why Andy's so important is because she does have a special skill. Okay. Because a, a lot of the true knot doesn't. Rosie is the most powerful. Yeah. I got that vibe that Rose was the most powerful too, or Rosie, sorry. And that yeah. they needed someone who could do what Andy does here. They call her a pusher in the movie. I don't know if that's what they call her in the book. She doesn't have that skill in the book. Oh, she doesn't? Okay. No, she's just a sleeper. So she can just put people to sleep. I got basically. you. Okay. So essentially they're watching her and what they watch her do is essentially put the guy to sleep and then talk to him and say that like, then, you know, she carves two snake bites into his face and tells him that when he wakes up, he's going to have to tell everyone that he was bitten by a rattlesnake. She robs him and essentially she like robs him and leaves him with a scar so that everyone will know. Everyone will know he was bit by a snake, but yeah. Yeah. They won't know he's like a pedophile. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a flawed plan. Yeah. Well, she's like 15. I yeah. Mean, the, who, I mean, the plan's not great. Uh, in the book, she's 32. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. She's 32 and had a horribly abusive father. This isn't how they catch her really in the book. Like, oh, okay. It's a completely different character story, kind of. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. So this is purely for the movie but she leaves the theater and rosie and the crow follow after her 
And she tries to put Rosie to sleep. She tries to push Rosie. Yeah. And Rosie's like, <laughs> nice try. Yeah. That's not going to work on me, darling. Nope. We yeah. cut to Danny waking up with an empty bottle in his hand, sleeping under an overpass. Yeah. We then cut to Aniston, New Hampshire, where it's Abra's birthday. Uh, she's like, I think, five or so at this point. She's young for sure. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did like that. They have a magician at her birthday party and he's like doing, I think, great birthday party magic tricks. Right. He's like that level right. of magician. Yeah. Paige would have definitely uh, spooned him. Yeah. Oh, She's like, yo, you can pull me out of your hat. <laughs> I did like that he was like doing these, I think, decent magic tricks. And then she's like, oh, I can do that. And he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I just work here. Like, I, I don't know what you want me to do about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just a birthday party magician. I'm not Chris Angel. Yeah, also, this is not me living out my dream. So, <laughs> Also, I'm a stand-up comedian, but my agent said I should do this for money. So, yeah. <laughs> Hey, can I show you my reel? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we cut into the house where Abra's dad is bringing her birthday cake back in the house and her mom is standing in the doorway of the kitchen just stunned because the entire kitchen's been tossed and if they look up into the ceiling all of the spoons are floating yeah which was kind of the the trick he was doing outside is that as he like dumped his hat mm-hmm. spoons and stuff fell out of it well and also he was like sticking spoons and stuff to his nose and his hand yeah 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 I could do that yeah and then all the spoons are like on the ceiling and then they all fall and it scares yeah. everyone, including me a little bit. Uh, they all crash to the ground and Danny Rose and everyone feels it. Yeah. Like literally it stops everyone in their tracks and then they go back to what they're doing. So we cut to Rose who goes into her trailer where Andy is sleeping, has been sleeping it off. Uh, and she basically says, we've been following you. You've basically marked six men in three months. You've been busy. And she gives her an offer that she could basically stay young for a long time. Eat well, live long. Yep. Yeah. Ten years from now, you're 15. A hundred years from now, maybe you're 17. And if she wants to do it, she can. They're giving her the option. I did sort of get the option. If she didn't want to, they were just going to kill her. Absolutely. So <laughs> she had the quote unquote <laughs> option. <laughs> Although I will say she does seem to be like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. But this is like the vampire's dilemma. Like if you were either going to be eaten by a vampire or turned into a vampire, what do you choose? Yeah. And I know people who would say, just kill me. I'd rather die than live forever. But I would rather live forever than die. So like it falls, I think, on that side of it. I don't want to live forever. Life is long enough as it is. Yeah. But I wouldn't mind being a vampire for a while. Right? I'm with you, Paige. Try it out. I'm going to go like Blade style. Yeah. Sounds like an exciting lifestyle. But then you'd have to go (laughs) see the vampire council and they'd put a whole play on of your crimes before they (laughs) condemn you to death. (laughs) So we cut to Danny getting off a bus and he walks through a park that has like a little miniature version of the town. And I just have in my notes, fuck about the model village then. I was like, oh, I bet Paige loves this Edgar Wright nod. (laughs) I do. Although I'm sure it's in the book too, but I I liked it. I thought it was cool. And the camera shot of it where it shows the real town square and then it pulls Mm -hmm. down real low to show the actual model town square. I thought it was really cool. Really great. It's, Mm -hmm. It's very cool. But this is where he runs into Billy and Billy's like, hey, uh, I don't recognize you and you're in the park and there's kids here. What's good? Who Who is you? Which honestly, good for you. Good for looking out. Yeah, good looking out. So Billy, after talking to him for a couple minutes, Billy's like, 
is a dude that needs help, so he helps set him up with an apartment. Dude, Billy is, he like goes all out for Ewan McGregor's character for Danny. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 And the apartment happens to be above where Billy is staying. So like Billy's downstairs on the ground floor. Danny's up in the attic. And he also tells him that he's going to help find him some work and says that he just gets this feeling about people. It's hard to explain or understand. And Danny, of course, who shines is like, "Eh, it's easier than you think. Yeah. We cut to Snakebite Andy on the beach. And this is where she basically says she's ready. And... They kind of introduce some of the true knot. This is where we first meet Grandpa Flick. Yeah. And he kind of presides over essentially the ceremony where they are the chosen ones. They're the fortunate ones. And what is tied cannot be untied. They tie her life to their life. And essentially. They tie the knot. Boom. Got it. I do sort of feel like this whole ritual is something that they do because they enjoy doing it. They enjoy like the pomp and circumstance of it. But all you really have to do to become one of these members is to have the steamy stuff shotgunned into your face and breathe it in deeply. Look, I don't, I'm not into polyamory or whatever, so I don't know <laughs> their their specific things. Um, but I mean, to eat their own or whatever. Uh, I will say there is kind of a difference and, and it's important in the book, not as important in the movie. There's a difference between steam that is achieved through fear and death, essentially, and, like, stress and fear and everything versus, like, willingly given, if that makes sense. Okay. So by breathing in this steam, it does kind of make her one of them, but inhaling steam in general does not necessarily immediately make you evil, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Because in this movie, I mean, she just inhales Violet, because they have Violet in a canister, Rose or Rosie, the hat, steams it in, like, breathes in the steam, and then breathes it back out into Mm -hmm. Andy's face, and that's when she becomes one of the true knot. Right. So we cut to Danny waking up to the sound of a fly in his room, He turns over in bed and sees a dead arm wrapped around him and it kind of grabs him. It's the girl from the beginning. And she just says she ghosted him. She ghosted him. (laughs) Uh, They haven't found us yet. And then she says they were used to hearing him cry because I left him alone so much. So they didn't do anything. And they haven't found us yet. And we see that the toddler is dead along with her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He scrambles away from the bed. He is about to grab the bottle that he has in his bag, but instead he goes to Billy. Yes. And says, you said you knew my look. What did you mean? And Billy is like, you needed help. That, like, that's what I could tell. And he just says, I do need help. Come in and we'll talk about it. So we cut to his first AA meeting. Yeah. And at that meeting, he meets a, a local doctor who works at the hospital, but also a hospice care facility. And he tells him where he left his watch without knowing, like, the doctor didn't really say anything about it, but Danny knew. Yeah. So we cut to that doctor's office, which, by the way, is almost a set for set recreation of the office at the beginning of The Shining. I had that in my notes. I was like, this looks like the yeah. hotel manager's office, even with the window behind him. Yep. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, everything looks exactly the same. Yeah, and we find out here that uh, for work, he's just been doing a couple shifts at Teeny Town running the train, but he does have orderly experience, and the doctor needs somebody who can work hospice, and he says hospice orderlies are hard to find and hard to keep, because it's a very difficult job. Yeah, he specifically asked, how are you with death? Like, can you handle that? Yeah. And Danny's like, yes, I can handle that. Yeah, grew up with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can fully handle the dying. Yeah. 
So we cut to the beach where Andy wakes up and Rose greets her. And Andy's like, you said it didn't hurt, but that I felt like I was dying. And Rose is basically like, yeah, you did. <laughs> and she says, am I still human? And Rose just says, do you care? Which is like a high school girl response to that question. I was like, I mean, she asked. She probably does care. Although, yeah, maybe I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of with Rose on on. Does it matter if, if you're you're living long and you know, not aging, do you care? And, like, also, they go around in, like, a camper caravan. Like, you know, like... Yeah, this doesn't sound like a great life to me. Yeah, if I'm gonna, like, live forever, like, I want to, like, live it up forever. Yeah, I want to be full-blown Lestat at his foppiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to come out of my camper at... 12 o'clock in the afternoon while the other vampires are cooking hot dogs. I'd be like, this life sucked. Like, I want a steak. I want a nice hotel. And I would just flip over the fucking grill and I'd be like, why are we even eating people? Yeah. Well, and and we find out like later that they're rich and well connected. So allegedly they have money and stuff. And so it's like, so again, like we're eating people to to constantly camp. No, I love glamping, hate camping. So like I sort of get the appeal of like camping, quote unquote, like they are doing it like they all have RVs doing that for a weekend every now and then would be fun. Doing it for your whole life would not be fun. Yeah, no, no, no. Forever. Well, yeah, yeah. So it's not technically forever. It's just live long, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of years. It would be terrible, right? Yeah. But I do understand, like, if you could live a very, very long time, you could make a lot, a lot, a lot of money because you could invest in stuff. I understood how they were, like, well-connected and well-moneyed, but I would hate that lifestyle. But that's why vampire is cool. Like, I would pay mercenaries to go kidnap people and bring them to, like, my, my beach house or whatever, and then I would eat them. I, I, I don't know. If, I, if you have money, you can do anything. Anyway, so we cut to the hospice ward where they have a cat walking through the halls and it goes through a patient's door and it sleeps at the foot of that patient's bed. Danny goes in to basically retrieve the cat. The cat, whose name is Azrael, which is the the god of death. The angel of death, yeah. yeah. Which that doctor, forgetting that cat and naming it that, that's real messed up. It is real messed up, yeah. Here's the, here's the thing. Cats do know. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I know, but like like having an inside joke with your death cat is like a little weird for your hospice. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You might say that doctor's like, it's like funny to him. Like he has a weird sense of humor, my Yeah, you. Like yeah. you might say sort of a gallows type humor. Oh, I, I get it. I'm just saying <laughs> someone's going to come in there and be like, well, I just need to, you know, I want to check my mom and this is terrible. He's like, oh, sorry, that's a cat. Azrael, and he's going to be like, the angel of death? Cat? Maybe this isn't the facility. Yeah, for we're going to go ahead and room your mom with Azrael. Anyway, <laughs> so the cat always seems to know. And so he goes in and talks to the patient. And he's like, no, it's just, it's a cat, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, no, the cat knows. I know I'm going to die. And he essentially kind of eases him into death. Uh, basically by talking to him, by shining and just saying, there's nothing to be scared of. You're just going to sleep. Finally, true, restful sleep. So Danny gets back to his apartment, Yeah, takes off his shoes, and on the blackboard, he sees a single message that just says, hello. So he picks up a piece of chalk and writes back, hi. Is it weird in hindsight that he's like texting a little girl? Uh, it's actually weirder in the book. <laughs> oh, is it? That's uncomfortable. I don't know. If my chalkboard was talking to me, I'd talk back. I, I, I will admit he does not know it's a little girl at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. He probably thinks it's a ghost or something. Yeah. He is on like ghost chat roulette, though. You yeah. don't know what's on the other side of that chalkboard. You just got to keep it pretty innocent. I think he just like, he's like, hello, hi. And I, 
obviously it implies they have a lot of conversations, but like hopefully it, it's all it's all up in the up and up. Yeah, well, and okay, so this is why I don't like Ouija boards because you don't know who you're talking to. It's always Cornelius, the Confederate general. <laughs> it always well, is. Same reason I don't like the internet. <laughs> in in the book, they talk using a chalkboard for a little bit but then she gives him an email and they email back and forth oh okay okay so then he's just emailing a small child okay cool that is even worse you are right yeah that's terrifying they and they have kind of like a longer relationship than they do in this book via email so it implies in the movie that like they've she calls him uncle danny they've had lots of conversation like the implication was like they've talked a lot yeah because she's like like 13 or something by the time all this stuff goes down She's like 13 by the time this goes down. It implies that most of it was... So they talked like six years or whatever. It's eight. They, well, in the movie, they jump ahead eight years. Okay. But they haven't talked in those eight years. Oh, okay. So they don't exchange emails until after that eight-year jump. Okay. Yes. Because we haven't done that in the movie yet, and I was just confused on where you were in the timeline of the book. That makes sense. That a five-year-old wouldn't have an email. Okay, this all checks <laughs> yeah. out. God, if I had an email address when I was five, it would have been some bonkers-ass shit. Like, <laughs> that email I'd like, address? Oh. I'd be like, uh, I'd be like, loud farts 44, bye. <laughs> So uh, we cut to his AA meeting, which is again eight years later. So he's now eight years sober. He's literally getting his eight year chip. Yep. And he dedicates it to his dad, which I thought was super fucking sweet. Oh, I sobbed through this whole scene every time. I have so many like dad issues because my dad died in 2017. Like I and I just have not addressed with all of that yet. So like, man, this stuff really got me. But essentially what he says is like, I kind of only knew my dad as an alcoholic with the exception of. I guess Jack was in AA for like five months, which we do, I think, hear about a little bit in The Shining. We do, we do. Yeah. Where he had like just gotten sober after he hurts Danny's arm. But that's sort of where The Shining starts. And then he goes to the Overlook Hotel and falls off the wagon, right? Immediately, yeah. And uh, essentially what he says is like all he wanted was to stand here and to get better for us. Although Ghost Jack, not so much later in the movie. Uh, the conversation he has with his dad later in the movie implies that maybe he did not want to get as better as he thought. Well, he's also not talking to Jack. Yes, he's talking to his own. Yeah, projection of his father. Yeah. Yeah. And even that projection is like, I'm not your dad, bro. Yeah, I'm not your dad. And also, aren't kids and wives a burden? Knocking it back. (laughs) 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 So we cut back to his job at hospice. And he's helping someone else go to sleep because of the cat, because the cat chose them. And they sing together as the man drifts off. He then comes home to his apartment and sees a note on the chalkboard. And this is where he says, oh, it's been a minute, little pen pal, because it's been like eight years in between. Yeah. And so it just says morning. And he says school, which I don't know how he would know. So it, it, I, like, it implies they have talked more than just once in the yeah. eight years. Well, and I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing it's not the full eight year gap. I'm guessing it's been some sort of gap. Mm-hmm. But like not the full. Yeah, they've had conversations. He knows somehow it's a child. So we cut to Abra getting up and getting ready to go to school. And we cut to the true knot and. Uh, we find out that Rosie is sitting up on top of like her RV trying to find more people with steam. Like she's kind of like astral projecting to try and find people. Astral projection they use a lot in this movie, but to me this felt very much like when Professor X goes into that circular room and searches for other... It's because they're spooky (laughs) X-Men. It's called Cerebro. Cerebro, yeah. But we find out that they've been tracking somebody who shines in Iowa... 
we don't really know who it is. But at this point, the crow is trying to ask her to open one of the canisters because Grandpa Flick's not doing well. Yeah. They kind of need to eat. The steam hasn't been as potent lately. So. And if I know anything about these guys, it's very much that their opinion is the steam must flow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also he kind of talks to her about how the world isn't as steamy and you're looking for a whale. Yeah. Which I hate that they call it steam. I didn't like it in the books. I don't like it here. Whatever. But he's basically arguing that like fewer people shine. And the explanation for it is like. People are distracted by other things. Yeah, it's very much like a kids these days conversation. Well, and that makes a lot more sense with how the true knots are de- are depicted in the book, oddly enough. And when we get to the end, uh, we're all going to laugh about it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm so excited. So uh, we cut to a baseball field in Adair, Iowa, and we see a kid, number 19, that seems to be able to read the pitcher's mind, and the crow is watching the game. So after the game, Bradley Trevor, I think is his name. That's the kid? The kid. Number 19, yeah. Yep, is walking home. The van pulls up behind him. They offer him a ride home, and he says no. And Andy pops out of the van, talks him into it. Yeah, she's like pushes him into it. She's using her power to do it, yeah. Yeah, so we cut to the True Knots at like an abandoned factory and like outside. So there's like, it's almost like a vacant lot kind of. Yeah. They pull the kid out of the van. They tie him down. He's screaming. And she basically tells him like, I need you scared because pain and fear purify steam. So they stab him to death and then they basically inhale all of his steam and this is where it gets oddly sexual because people end up making out around it covered in blood. I guess I just blocked all that out because I yeah. do remember the scene. Like, they were brutally murdering this kid, like, torturing him, enjoying it, yeah. and then breathing in the steam. And I just yep. was focused on that and not how they were making out. Although, thinking back on it, they definitely were, and that's gross. Yeah, <laughs> It's right. worse than me at a Chewy's. Uh, no, it's not that bad. <laughs> That's how I feel though. When I get that creamy jalapeno sauce, man, I just want to like make out with Natalie. So <laughs> Abra sees this in her dreams and wakes up. She screams and she kind of pushes into that plane. She almost astral projects. Let's put it that way. Yeah. She definitely jumps inside Rosie the hat's mind. Yes. And Rose senses it. Yeah. So she then immediately gets out of Rosie's mind and she screams, but she does get to watch it. Her parents come running in to check on her. And as she's screaming, her energy or her shine pushes through the wall in Danny's room. And it like essentially like cracks that chalkboard wall to say red rum. Yeah. Or murder, but he sees it in the mirror. Yes. Red rum. I did like the landlord who's letting him stay there. Was like it's eighty five dollars a week or a month or whatever the rent was, and she was like, "Be quiet." Yeah, so she's like, you know, she cares about her rental property. I get it, that's fair. But he just fully destroys that wall, or I guess Abra does, not him. He's been renting though for a decade. He has. Yeah, that's true. It'd be covered under like you know wear and tear. But what I really thought about is later in this movie, he throws a full bottle of booze at the floor and it shatters, and I was like, that's not quiet. (laughs) And also gonna ruin those hardwood floors. Yeah. You're gonna have to clean that up immediately. Yep. So he takes a piece of chalk and writes who, and then she writes baseball baseball boy. boy. Yeah. Because she doesn't know his name either. She doesn't know anything other than what she saw from Rosie's eyes. Right. Uh, We cut back to the true knot, and this is where they're all writhing and kind of breathing and making out. 
And as the rest of them are doing that, the crow and Rosie push the last bit of steam out to save into a canister, but it's not a lot. So we cut to Abra and her parents, and she's trying to explain what happened, and they're trying to tell her it's just a dream. We cut back to the True Knots, where they're burying Baseball Boy, a.k.a. Bradley. Yeah. And Rosie tells the crow... We had a looker and he was like, tonight, she's like, "Mm mm-hmm. And he says, big steam, huge. And she thinks it's coming from the East Coast. And he's like, you're saying somebody looked in from 1,500 miles away? And she says, maybe further, but I haven't felt power like that in so long. And so they they decide that they're going to try and find her just in case they can't get to her before her parents freak out because they say that pills or psychological treatments could ruin the steam (laughs) which is another like thing i don't love yeah in this movie it is sort of an anti-pharmaceutical message which i don't like because a lot of people who take those medications need them yeah that's kind of rough yeah i you know what i feel like a not everyone needs them you know but there are treatment options without them and if that's what you and your mental health provider decide good for you but also b they can be super helpful and people just need to find the right one and when you find the right one it can be great and enhance your quality of life yeah measurably to your point it isn't just an anti-pharmaceutical message because it is also like therapy and stuff like that other ways of dealing with well okay so the best practice with pharmaceuticals is also talked like therapy and medicine together is like the best course of treatment modality well i mean for some things we don't have time. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, Mikey's like, it took me years to learn this in school. I don't have time to teach you all right now. Yeah. Well, for like a lot of a lot of things going on with you, that's probably the best way to go. Some things are pure medication. But that, but I mean, like, yeah, like, some things are literally a brain chemistry issue, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like a bipolar or th- things like that. Or schizophrenia or things yeah. like that mm-hmm. that are brain chemistry issues. Some things are behavioral and you need the pharmaceuticals. To help even you out while you're dealing with the trauma in therapy. And eventually you sort of stop taking pharmaceuticals, right? Because you're dealing with what is causing you to have suicidal ideations or things like that. We can do it less seriously. Like I have ADHD, like very badly. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. guys probably know this. Yeah. Uh, When I was a child, I was on Ritalin from like second grade to like I graduated. Mm -hmm. A a child has a much harder time with emotional regulation or controlling their behaviors and things like that. And as I grew older, I was able to come up with strategies and things I could do to help me with some of those symptoms, like some of the problems of ADHD to kind of get off those medications like in college. Like I was like, okay, I need to set this time, like studying strategies and like, you know, detail. Like I still struggle with a lot of things with that. But you know, you can come up with co- different coping strategies. But yeah. a child has a lot harder time organizing their life around your mental health symptoms than an adult. And that's and that's ADHD. I'm not, like some stuff. You might not be able to do that at all. Right. Anyway. So Danny writes on the wall before he leaves the house and it just says, hope you're OK. Your friend, Dan. Yeah. So we cut to Abra at her house uh, coming downstairs to talk to her mom. And she's like, I made a new friend. His name is Dan. <laughs> On the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's never a conversation a parent wants to have with their child. Oh, you made it a friend? Awesome. Where'd you meet him? In my mind. Uh, oh, okay. no. All I right. loved her dad's reaction later in the movie when he meets Dan. Oh, the appropriate reaction, you mean? <laughs> yeah, when an adult man shows up to talk with your daughter? Yep. Child yep. daughter, I should say. Yeah. So we cut to the computer lab, and she's kind of listening in on everybody at school um but somebody calls her a freak or thinks it and she hears it 
Yeah. So she goes back to Googling missing children and finds Baseball Boy, a.k.a. Bradley Trevor. So we cut to Abra going home. She talks to her dad, who's writing a book. Uh, she tells him she's going to start her homework. She goes upstairs. She's looking at the photo and listening to music. And she's kind of reliving the abduction and the van ride and the caravan and everything through his eyes. Yeah, I feel like she was like rewinding it to like get clues that she could then give Danny. Right. Yeah. And she sees the murderer again and sees them leave and kind of take takes notes of where they were. She goes to her window and astral projects and she ends up in a grocery store. She looks down at her hands and they're Rose's hands because she's in Rose's head. I thought this scene was really cool. I really loved how they showed astral projection. Mm-hmm. thought that was very cool. Mm-hmm. And then I also like that when she's inside Rose, they're both sort of having to figure out, okay, Abra's like, okay, where am I? What's going on? I don't even really know mm-hmm. who I'm inside of right now. We've all been there. <laughs> oh, Mikey, no. No, no Mikey. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, but then Rose is sort of figuring out too because I guess that connection sort of works both ways. Although Rose doesn't realize it immediately, but she does sort of catch on as she's in this grocery store. I do like that she can see it in the reflection of the the yeah. milk door. I, well, that's what clues Rosie into it, right? Yeah. Yeah, because she sees Abra in the reflection. These are the kind of things that if instead of the True Knots it was a singular serial killer, you could keep a lot of this. And it's equally as interesting as scary. It would literally be the same, except for it's just one person that you don't know anything about. Like, we're not following that one person. Right. Right. And also, that saves sort of some of the time issue in this. And and I mean, like, the runtime is long, right? You're welcome, everyone. Yeah, but largely because (laughs) we spend an hour of this movie with the true knot. Right. And if it was just that singular serial killer who we're trying to find out but don't know anything about, and we're getting really quick glimpses of this... That cuts out 45 minutes of that hour with the true knot, right? Yep. I don't hate that idea either. I think that's great. And you like cut to creepy kills, like creepy, like, st- like, like more of a mystery. And then like, I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. Although I will openly admit, I still, like I said at the beginning, I don't dislike the true knot, but I do think that would be cool. I like that idea. So she tries to get into Abra's head. She like reaches around and grabs the back of her head and Abra pushes her out, basically tosses her back like half an aisle of this grocery store. (laughs) Which just imagine being in that aisle just further down and you see a lady just get thrown by nothing like feet away like i would be like oh shatters the glass on that door yeah Yeah. like i'll get milk somewhere else like (laughs) it's not that big of a deal we got a Publix down the street i hear they don't astrally project throw people i'm gonna go there (laughs) that's a much safer place to shop well meanwhile danny passes out at the same time yeah which, because their connection is not as explained in this movie, if you know that they are related and therefore their shine is related, that makes a lot more sense. I guess it does. <laughs> it also makes it less creepy. You mean like from a um, pedophilia vibe? Yeah. 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 I mean, Danny addresses it in the film. He's like, this is like, you cannot talk to me in a park. Like, I'm going to yeah. get him. Well, and also when he goes to meet Abra at her house and the dad like attacks him, he's like, please show him. Please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but as he passed out, he screamed for Tony. So Billy, as he's helping you up, is like, who's Tony? You said, please help me, Tony. And he just says, oh, I'm sorry about that. And is bleeding from the nose the same yeah. way that Abra is because it takes effort, essentially, to push people out. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rose gets back to camp. She goes to her trailer and she and the crow are talking and she's like, she's super powerful. She threw me out like it was nothing. We have to have her. And they ask, is she food or do we turn her? 
And she says, we don't turn her. We don't want anyone with that kind of power in the knot because it would challenge Rosie. Yeah. So we cut to Aubrey goes to school the next day, but instead of actually going to school, she gets on a bus and finds Danny in the park and talks to him in his head. So he tells her that they should probably use outside voices and again is like, I'm a grown man. You're a teenage girl. We shouldn't be talking. And she says, well, I'm Aubrey Stone and you're my uncle Dan. And that's not even a lie. You're magic like me. And he says, I don't know about magic, but we both shine. That's how it was described to me. I did like how Abra's like, oh, you call it shine? That's not what the kids call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he does tell her. And I, this is where I kind of like it. It's almost they treat the shine almost kind of like the force where he's like, a lot of people have a little bit, but don't know it. So it's like yeah. everybody shines a little bit, you know, if you're preternaturally good at something or, you know, you can kind of anticipate people's emotions or whatever. But he says that very he's only met very few people who knew they shined and really shined and could kind of like exercise it at will. Um, and she tells him about Bradley Trevor, the baseball boy, and that they took him and ate him. And he tells her to go home. Don't chase these people. Don't attract their attention. Keep your head down and they won't see you because if they see you, they'll come back. We cut to his job at hospice that night. And Azzy the cat goes down the hall to an empty room. And he's like, what are you talking about? There's nobody dead in there. But he opens that room and sees what looks like a ghost. So he opens a box but it turns out that it's Halloran. He's like, don't put me in that box. <laughs> yeah. And he and Halloran talk. We find out that the last ghost that he put in a box from the Overlook was Horace Derwent years ago. Yeah. Except for, as we'll find out later, his father, who I guess didn't come after him. Well, that pretty much checks out. Yeah. He's an absentee father, Todd. Is an no, absentee I got father it. Yeah, joke. it's just sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's also the question of is his father actually there? Or is that him projecting? Well, and then also the hotel is its own thing too, right? Yes, but I do think it's interesting once they get to the hotel. We'll talk about it when we get to that point. There are no ghosts in the hotel except for his father until he opens the boxes. Yeah, in the blood from the elevator. But yeah, that's like the hotel, not a person. Though. Like the hotel is his own entity, but you can't put the hotel in a box. Well, I think Halloran right. sort of explains that because the hotel is evil or it was built at an evil place. I'm not quite sure which it is. It's the latter. It's definitely the okay. latter because in the book, it's the latter as well. Okay, cool. Okay. But, so it's built in an evil place. So that place is evil, which draws people that shine and ghosts there. And that's why I think that, you know, she sees the blood, whereas he doesn't, because that's the, sh the hotel that is evil or the area that is evil right. being evil, right? I don't think it draws ghosts there as much as people die there. And then become ghosts there. That also makes sense. And then become sense. ghosts yeah. there because it's an evil place. They're drawn there because they shine or whatever reason that they die, and then right. they become ghosts there. Yeah. Right, which to me explained why Jack is there, because maybe that's the last person he couldn't put in a box. Yeah. I also don't know if Jack is actually Jack in yeah. this movie. Yeah. I, I I saw it more as a projection. I mean, I, I'm happy to be wrong about that. I am not a, like a huge Stephen Kingophile, so I don't know the ins and outs of everything. But I read that as it was his projection of his dad, not his actual dad. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not in the book. It doesn't okay. have a, a huge bearing on the story. That's a bummer, man. I loved that scene. Fuck. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. 
So Halloran is basically like, hey, you have to help that little girl. It's your debt. I helped you. You help her, essentially. And so we cut to Abra's house where we find out that her mom is flying out to see her grandmother who is dying of cancer. Yeah. And asks Abra if she's going to pull through. And Abra says, I don't know. I hope so. Tell her I love her. Which to me suggests she's not going to pull through. Yeah, she ain't going to make it. And that character is not in this movie, but is super important in the book. The grandma character? Oh, yeah, because in the book, she lives with her grandma, right? Yes. Her mom's really kind of not in the book. Okay. And her grandma's super important. Interesting. So we cut to Rosie on the top of her mobile home meditating and she astral projects into the sky searching for abra and this shot is very cool of her kind of flying parallel to earth i i think it's very cool and also the reverse of this when she gets thrown out of this scene and she's like tumbling back very cool and like nails her her body and falls onto the ground i thought that that was such a cool way to visualize astral projection yeah 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 uh we cut to she lands on abra street in front of her house and floats up to Abra's window and into her room. Yeah. And she sees a whole wall of file cabinets. Now, because we've already seen Abra's room, we kind of already know that this is not Abra's room. This is something else. Okay, can I can I admit something to you right now? Sure. Because I knew that. I knew it wasn't Abra's actual room. I thought it was her being in Abra's space. And then they tried to visualize, like, do you know how, like, in the early 90s, maybe even late 80s, when, like, movies about computers or, like, the internet would try to visualize what it was going to look like in the future? And it was all, like, yeah, they're going to have, like, file cabinets in, in like, this VR-type scenario. I thought that was, like, Flanagan trying to visualize how she was going to dig into her mind in, like, a very yeah. hacker's sort of a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean— Stephen King has done this before with other— stories where like the minds represented like different rooms and stuff with the files in it like sure i think that's how stephen king visualizes his mind yeah and and, like that's in it that's in uh what's that really dumb movie with the aliens morgan freeman's in it it's like a real bad movie where like jason the the guy from chasing amy gets his butthole eaten by an an alien in in a bathtub is this a porn (laughs) dreamcatcher dreamcatcher yeah I just Googled Jason Lee alien butthole eating, and that's what came up. So (laughs) I don't know what that means. You're welcome, everyone. But also, I'm glad I'm not on my work computer. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of multiple ways that it's depicted in the movie because we see Danny's version, which is the maze with the boxes. Yes, that's his mind, right? Then we see Abra's version, which is the file cabinets. And then we see, literally in this very scene, We see Rosie's version, which is a cathedral with like a Dewey Decimal System card system. I actually liked her system a lot. Very cool. I love cathedral architecture. Well, she's had a lot longer to like put all that together. Yeah. Right. So she's had time to build a bigger mousetrap, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it's like she, uh, you know, she's been alive for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And she has had time to build up her Minecraft server. Yeah. Her mind craft server nailed it <laughs> so as she's going through abra's file cabinets abra slams one on her hand trapping oh. her hand inside this is brutal man i loved it though it was brutal though and then abra jumps into rosie's mind and starts rifling through those cards yeah and rosie to get away from her rips her hand and some of her skin out of that file cabinet yeah. she jumps back out the window and 
spins, basically tumbles through the air back to the trailer. It's super eventually cool. Eventually falling off of it. And her hand is still mangled in real life. Oh, yeah. It's sort of like the Matrix that way. When you're uh, inside the Matrix, if you die, you'll die in real life, right? So it's sort of like right. that, I think. Because yeah. she actually does have that injury. So I assume injuries you receive while you're astral projectioning also stay with you in real life. Right. So as she comes back, we find out that Grandpa Flick is cycling. He's basically finally dying. Yeah. We cut to Abra talking to Uncle Dan and basically telling him that she hurt her. And he's like, what have you done? Because now they can track you, basically. Yeah. We cut back to Grandpa Flick, who they basically give him kind of a eulogy. And he dies, gives off tons of steam, and they all pounce on it and have a weird, you know... A death wake. They eat his steam. Yeah, but it's like the weird death orgy after. That's kind of strange. Where they're just kind of like, they eat him and then they're just like writhing, writhing, writhing. Writhing, writhing, writhing. Come on! (laughs) Yeah. We cut to Danny wakes up Billy. It's four in the morning. And he's like, you gotta trust me. Uh, They drive to Iowa. That is like, Mikey, if you came over and you're like, hey man, trust me. Drive me to Iowa. I'd be like, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no. I would I would also be like, no. Let's, this let's little girl online told me we need to go to Iowa to dig up a child's body. I'd be like, none of this sounds good to me. Yeah, you also can't borrow my car. I don't want exactly. any, yeah. any evidence. <laughs> but if you, like, talk to me psychically, I'd be, like, more on board. Oh, yeah. I mean, does I don't think Ewan McGregor does that, though, does he? No, but that's what I would need. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he doesn't, but for him to psychically be like, I'll buy ice cream. <laughs> so Abra is astral projecting in the back seat the whole time. Yeah. And he's kind of talking to her as they go. And this is where they really kind of make friends, I would say. They kind of get to know each other. Um, and she pops into his mind for a little bit. And sees the overlook and the maze with the boxes. And she's like, what was that? And he says, I bumped into something like these things, but it wasn't a person. It was a place. Yeah. So don't go poking around there again. We cut back to camp and Rosie's hand has started to heal from the steam, but not completely. No, it doesn't fully heal until like late in the movie when she like steams up for the final battle. Yeah. And they find out that they've been tracking Abra and they kind of know where she's at so they're going to try and get her but they want Rosie to stay behind because they think she might be able to track Rosie so meanwhile Billy and Danny get to the clearing where they buried baseball boy and they dig him up they find him and this is where we find out that Billy used to hunt and has guns but he basically smells Billy's body or uh, Bradley's body before they they dig him up. Well, because he tells a story about how he like he shot a deer and he was like, I'll just follow it until, mm-hmm. you know, it dies. And then he finds it days later and it just smelled horrible up against this tree. And he's like, that's what this smells like. Yeah. And I'm never hunting again. Well, and he hadn't hunted since that day. Yeah. Because it, it mm-hmm. messed with him so much. And he's like, and that's what this smells like. Yeah. Yep. They find the glove. And they drive back. And on the way back, Billy's like the people who did that. And Danny's like. They're not people. Anyone who would do that to a person, specifically a child, isn't people. And we have to basically make a stop to get guns, and then we'll come see Abra and her parents. Yeah. Well, thank God they're in Iowa. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) So we cut to Abra's house, 
And Abra is just like, oh, you're the adult talking to my teenage daughter. I'm going to throw you up against this car. And I'm like, good, good call. Yeah, that's a good parent right there. Good parent right there. Uh, But Abra basically shows him what she's seen. She pushes into his head. Yeah. And we cut to... He's in the kitchen, like, jittery, like, pouring himself a whiskey. He's, like, shaking. It's, I mean, but that would be such a revelation for me. I would need a minute. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's it's a lot to unpack. Because, one, you've known your daughter has, like, some stuff going on. Then you learn that she's, like, talking to other people who also have powers. Then she pushes a child murderer into your head and says that there's evil people after her. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, for sure. So they give her the glove, she astral projects into the van, and basically tracks them on their trip, so she knows where they are and how close they are. And they set up a plan. So Rose, who's also trying to track Abra, tracks them to a forest clearing where Billy and Danny are waiting secretly. And Abra is basically just sitting on a park table and they try to inject her, but it turns out to just be a stuffed rabbit. I love that reveal. And then it turns into like the grassy knoll where they just start taking shots at the the true not people until they kill all of them. Okay, so I need to I need to pause the podcast. Okay. Okay. Because here's what drives me crazy about the true knot. The fact that they can just be killed by a shotgun like it's no big deal. Right. Yes. And then, yeah. Or like a car wreck. And I'm like. What is he? Why even eat people if you don't even have like awesome immor- immortality abilities? Thank you. So I was going to say that when Ewan McGregor like makes them wreck their car mm-hmm. and that's how he like saves Abra from the crow. Like, but like, why is he not even wearing a seatbelt if you can just die regularly? Yeah. So that made me mad then because that crow knew he was that fragile. Like, he knows he has the fragility of regular human existence, right? And still doesn't buckle his seatbelt. Like, the logic in the whole, you know, you think you're immortal, so you don't have to buckle your seatbelt. But if he knows he's that fragile, that does not hold up for me at all. No, it's not. That's a way different power set. So, like, when they're doing, like, Grandpa Joe's eulogy, they're like, you sail to the new world. I've been like, I could die on a boat, so I'm not going to sail to the new world. I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit in fun facts, but in the book, part Part of the reason they're hunting Abra is because something has happened to their physical form and they think that's the way to cure themselves. So in the book, it seems this way, too, where it's like they can still die from like human things, which for me, then I don't understand that power. But then I guess if you couldn't die, then they're so overpowered. How are Danny and Abra ever supposed to defeat them? Except by locking them in boxes. Well, locking them in boxes wouldn't work with them because they're not ghosts. Right. And so, like, although they try to do it to Rosie. I know, but right. it wasn't gonna it wasn't ever gonna work. And even in the metaphor, it doesn't work because Rosie is not a manifestation of his trauma. Trauma. She's actual She's an yeah. actual corporeal thing that is trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. When it looked like he was about to lock her in a box, I got mad. Mm. Because I was like, well, that that ruins the whole metaphor for me. It doesn't because yes, it's not gonna work, but that that's his only coping. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like when it doesn't work, I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I I, I like this you know but it, mm-hmm. it would have really bothered me if they had just locked her in a box and then she lived forever at the whatever so in this gunfight andy is the only one left standing and we thought the crow was there 
but he's not. We'll find out in a couple minutes where he is. Yeah. But essentially, it's just Andy. I was surprised at how strapped the True Knot were. Yeah, that's also different than the book, too. In the book, they don't have guns because they think it would draw too much attention to them. It would. And if you think about their gift, their shining gift, mm-hmm. like they can control people without guns, which I think is even scarier. Yeah. But like once they start shooting, they don't even try and like, okay, let's try and control them with their mind, which we're about to find out as you were alluding to, Paige. Well, so hear me out. What I mean, and this is again a pitch for the serial killer version of this. Someone who shines that that's how they kill people. And so it's a string of... I mean, that's how you would do it. Yeah, it's a string of of unsolved suicides that everyone thinks is suicide and the shiners know what's up. Yeah, because that's how you would do it. But like when Andy kills the friend of Ewan McGregor by saying kill yourself, like that is what they should have done. They shouldn't have pulled out pistols and tried to shoot people with scopes and rifles that are up on a hill. But not everyone has that gift. The film lore, or I guess canon, I guess if you want to think of it, is that she's the only one who can do that. I know, but the thing that bothers me about this scene is because she exists in this scene. She could have just said kill yourself and it wouldn't have worked on you and McGregor yeah but it would have worked on his friend so that takes out half of the gunman and she doesn't know you and McGregor's up there and it wouldn't work on him so like the right. fact that they immediately go to like a drug deal gone wrong is insane she just yells it out she's like shoot yourself no she's exactly like, no absolutely yeah. Mikey that's what you would do but they wait until everyone's dead and she does it sort of as an offhanded thing as she's dying which I thought was bonkers it made me wonder if she had to be a certain distance from you yeah because she tries to make you and McGregor go to sleep and it almost works but Abra wakes him up and then he tells Billy not to get close to her but Billy steps close and then she does it yeah I mean that that could be I mean, I don't know, but it felt weird to me that they were, it looked like they were going to buy like kilos of cocaine. Like that's how strapped they were. Yep. But now that everybody's dead, Abra's astral projection is like, where's the crow? And as she's saying it, he injects her at Abra's house because Abra hasn't been there at all. Yeah. And he banked on her doing that. So he carries Abra out of the house, leaving her dad dead in the living room. That was brutal, man. As brutal. Yeah. He takes her in the van and he has her under. But also, Paige, to your point, if you had the ability, I guess the crow just doesn't have the ability to have people kill themselves. Or He doesn't. He doesn't yeah, have okay. it. In the book, no one has it. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, it doesn't make sense that you would literally create a murder scene when you could get away scot-free and not have anyone looking for you from a police standpoint. Right. If you just have them take care of it themselves, right? In the movie, that's what they've identified Andy's power as, and they call it a pusher. Yeah. In the book, she's just a sleeper, so she can, like, make people go to sleep. So a pusher is, like, potentially a power that's out there. Sure. But... It also identifies the True Knots as not being super powerful, like the underlings not being super powerful, but primarily Rosie. So I would say maybe Rosie has that ability, sure, but we don't see it, and it probably doesn't work on people who shine, but it's definitely not something everybody else can do. At best, it's something Andy can do. Anyway, this is why the True Knot kind of like makes it all, because these talks right here. They start to just fall apart the more you kind of dig into it. Yeah, and yeah. this is why I really do like your... What if it was just a serial killer? Like if Rosie the Hat is in this movie, no one else is from a True Knot perspective, but we don't actually get to see the full Rosie the Hat until like, it would probably be this scene when she takes Abra, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or like she goes into their mind and she's like a scary version of herself, like a serial killer. Like a Babadook kind of monster type thing. And then when you see her in real life, she's this very attractive, like Rebecca Ferguson looking person, right? right? And then it 
Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, hear me out. The personification of the Overlook, and it can look like anyone. I don't hate that. That's also not at all. <laughs> that's not at all within the book. But I mean. No, I know. I'm just like. Yeah, like I don't hate that page. Yeah. What I think is we should change enough about the Shining series, the expanded Shining universe here, and then just write our own shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll cut this and then we'll workshop it and then we'll make <laughs> sure, millions sure, of sure, dollars. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not, if I can get shot in the shoulder and I die, like I'm not eating children. This is not even worth oh, it. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. some of these shots. Oh, what I thought was bonkers is that Andy, who is fully just like a 15 year old because she recently got turned even though she gets shot in a place that would not be a mortal injury she turns into the steam so like yeah everyone in that caravan lived hundreds of years andy lived no longer than she would have lived had she been mortal the entire time so as she's in the van she's talking to the chrome and he's like yeah we were always gonna have you and now a bunch of people are dead including your dad and it's all your fault yeah. And she tries to reach out to Dan, but can't because of the drugs he gave her. But Dan gets back to the house, sees that her dad is dead, comes back to his apartment with the dad's bottle of whiskey. I love this so much because it really shows how much he's struggling with his addiction. And I know it's eight years later, but like this is a real life depiction of what people who struggle with any addiction struggle with. Well, and it's different for every person, but this makes me cry every time. Yeah, it's he, so rough, man. Yeah, he goes to the bottle, goes to drink it, then can't do it. This is where he throws it across the room, and I'm yeah. like, your landlord's going to hear that. Good for you for not drinking, but like maybe just pour it out in the sink and then throw yeah. away the bottle. But I mean, it's right. not as dramatic, right? That's not dramatic. Right. So <laughs> this is where he realizes kind of what he's been told by both Abra and Halloran, that like his brain is like a radio. So instead of trying to call and reach out, he just listens in. Yeah. And this is how he tracks down Abra. So he astral projects into the van and together they decide that he's going to inhabit her. He's basically going to go into her mind, see everything, get clues so he knows where she is. I really like that, too. So he like he does astral project inside her mind and he's like talking to Crow and Crow's like talking back to him thinking it's Abra. Right. And then he makes it pretty clear. and He's like, oh, because they pass a city sign and he's like, oh, that's where we are. Yeah. And he's like, wait. Who am I talking to right now? Yep. And as he kind of pushes his way into Abra, he notices that he's not wearing a seatbelt and they make uh, the crow crash the van. Yeah. So they basically push forward into him and then crash the van. So Abra wakes up. Dan is gone and the crow is dying on the ground in front of the van because he's been thrown through the windshield. And Abra does that like really mean girl thing of like walking over to someone who's dying and it's like, good. I hope it hurts. A lot. Yeah. You're in my burn book. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, Todd, yes, Todd, why wouldn't you wear a seatbelt? Just yeah, why? I mean, if you're this fragile, like that would make, the fact that I'm immortal, not immortal, but I live for thousands of years, if I am this fragile, like regular mortality fragile, even more so, I would be careful with my safety. Right. All of the reasons you will, you would wear a seatbelt, Mikey, now are the same reasons I would wear a seatbelt if I was this sort of in this yeah situation. The only advantage is like if you're left alone, you will just age slowly. Yeah, well, that's what it's positioned as, right? Because right. the granddaddy figure in the true knot, like he dies of old age. Like I got that impression at least, right? Yeah, I'd imagine that if you stop eating steam, then you just age like a regular person does. I guess, yeah. I mean, probably a little slower, and I would imagine that it's like a gradual thing for you to get back to normal aging, but like a residual steam in your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so. 
Abra starts walking down the road and Rosie is standing in the middle of the road watching her and she just walks right through her. And so then I love cut that. to Rosie's trailer and she's like, all right, bitch child. And I'm like, bitch child. OK, I mean, she from a long, long time ago. Maybe that was a common phrase when she was coming up in the streets. Maybe. <laughs> I think it's also one of those things where you're so angry you can't insult people. Right. right. <laughs> I think when he crashes does that best, you're like trailer trash. Yeah, you shut, your, <laughs> shut your face. You're face and you're just like what did i just say yeah i think what really like triggered rosie is that abra was not at all scared of her when she asked her projects yeah. in front of her and abra just walks through she's like whatever you're not even here i don't care yeah <laughs> oh i know what kills you emotional vampires no seed belts <laughs> <laughs> uh, so rose inhales all the steam from all the remaining canisters to be like super powerful and her hand heals Meanwhile, Dan arrives at a motel and finds Abra sitting alone by the staircase. So he basically tracked her down, found her. Yeah. Together, they drive. She falls asleep. And when she wakes up, she's like, where are we? Ohio, where are we going? Colorado. Yeah. And he basically is like, we have to go to the Overlook. And she's like, why? And he says, because if it's dangerous for us, it's probably also dangerous for her. And maybe we can trap her there. I do sort of like how he doesn't know. And they make it clear like he's like, this is sort of a gamble. I don't know. But a figure, if it's bad for us, it's bad for them. We're going to try and trap them there with this. I like that. Right. So Abra's mom calls. She says, I love you. And then she dumps the phone like it's a James Bond movie. <laughs> Just like. Yeah, dro literally drops it out the window. She's like, yep. try and track me now, mom. <laughs> so they stop and get gas at the same gas station that Halloran stopped at in The Shining yeah. before he took the snowcat up. Uh, and they drive up the mountain. And this is where we get The Shining score comes in again. We have the helicopter shot. I love this. At night. They get to the Overlook. And he basically tells Abra to stay in the car because he has to go wake it up. Uh, so he takes a crowbar and opens the door and drops it as he enters. He looks around the hotel and everything seems kind of dead until he walks below the chandelier and it turns on by itself. Yeah. And it's very clear, like, the Overlook does wake up as he starts to walk around it. Like, he does bring it back to life. I love this part. I It sort of made me sad that when you said that this is not in the book. Yeah. No, I, I actually like this part, too. Yeah. I thought it was very, very cool. And the scenes that we get here are, like, more directly him impacting the trauma he experienced from his dad, which is... The other parts where he's dealing with his addiction are different, and I really like this part of it. Yes, and, and I agree, and that's why I think I'm I'm here for a showdown at the Overlook, 100%. Yeah, right? But that complicates the inclusion of the true knots. Does that make sense? Because then they're like the one part that's not really part of his metaphor. They are. Yeah. They, they are not a part of his metaphor because they aren't. They actually exist in a corporeal sense, which is why I think the serial killer narrative that you're pitching, yeah. Yeah. I'm on board for that. Because at this point, it's just Rosie. It is that. Yeah. You know, it's just getting to it just being Rosie and just being Dan and Abra. Right. You can yeah. cut all that down. Right. And I don't think you hurt the spirit of the movie by doing so. Right. Now, I will say that this ending, the showdown at the Over Overlook, only works as a sequel to the movie, not to the book. Well, because the Overlook is exploded in the book. It's destroyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The first thing he does is go to the boiler room and turn on the boiler and turn the breakers on. And again, this is a nod to the Stanley Hotel, but also a nod to the end that Jack gets in the book version of mm -hmm. The Shining. Yeah. So 
as he goes through, we see the hallway where the twins were, but the twins aren't there. We see the hallway to their apartment where they lived, the door that Jack chopped through. We see that it still says Red Rum. I really respect the recreation of these sets. Oh, like, yeah. The attention to detail is amazing. It looks like the one from The Shining, which there's no way those sets still exist, right? Right. I say as a question because I'm not sure, and I think you might have a fun fact, but... There there are some pieces that still do, okay. uh, but not, not large scale. So he walks up to the bar in the Golden Ballroom, and there's a single glass already sitting there. And he takes a seat, just like his father did in The Shining, and has a conversation with a man who identifies himself as Lloyd the bartender, but very clearly is a representation of his father. And they have a very kind of tough conversation. This makes me cry every time, too. Yeah, this was rough. Because his dad, a.k.a. Lloyd, is pouring him Jack Daniels, which we reveal is Jack's drink, yeah. not Danny's drink. And he's trying to give him advice to, like, stay out of it. Basically, stay out of Abra's problems. But Danny just starts telling him what happened after he died. So, like, mom and I went to Florida. We never wanted to see snow. Yeah. I was 20 when she died. And back then, with The Shining, I used to see flies circling people's faces. And I couldn't even see her face in the last couple days. And this manifestation of his father doesn't want to hear about it. Doesn't care. He's very much like... I'm not him, man. I'm just the bartender here. Right. But then he launches into... Now, it is very similar to Grady yes. from the first film, who is like, I'm not the caretaker. I wasn't the guy who did that. Yeah. And so I think that it also might be a kind of a nod to that. Sure. But in this next sequence, he basically is like, you know, this is medicine because I provide all around. I'm surrounded by mouths. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on earth. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. And are you going to take your medicine? Yeah. And it, which is in a way it's in more words. It is saying, are you going to follow in my footsteps? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm not. And so he swats the glass away. And as that happens, Abra tells him that Rosie is there. And so she comes into the hotel and she says, this place is sick. It has a cancer only worse. Yeah, because it's a cancer that kills other people. Oh, right. Yeah. So they grab the axe from behind glass and they go into the main kind of central room where Jack used to write. Which, is that the axe that killed Halloran in the first movie? Yes. Because I felt like, I mean, maybe don't grab the same axe. <laughs> I'm of the opposite. Do grab the same axe. Make that death mean some shit. Yeah, okay. I bet Halloran was like, oh, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> so Rosie comes into the Overlook, and she's just like feeling vibes and shit. She's seeing the elevator. She's seeing the blood. She's walking through the room where Jack used to write, and she sees Danny and Abra waiting with an axe. On the steps of that room. On the steps of that room. I love this so much. The same steps where he came after his wife with an axe in the first movie. Yeah. So Danny turns to Abra and says, when this starts, run. And Rosie is like, yeah, run, and then I'll find you, and then I'm just going to eat you until you eventually die. <laughs> And Danny says, you should be afraid because you don't know where you're standing. Yeah. And then she realizes like, oh, you're the one who killed my whole crew. So they both get in her head and put her in the maze. So she's following Abra running through the maze and she thinks it's Abra's head. And Abra kind of stabs her a couple times in the maze. <laughs> 
I thought that was funny. Abra keeps running up from behind her, shiving her in the back of the leg. I was like, yeah. this is, like, what is happening right now? It's cool. Yeah. So as she's chasing her, she eventually stops her and is choking her and realizes this isn't Abra's mind at all. Right. It's Danny's mind. So she blows him out and is like, how the hell did we miss you? You and I should have met years ago. And she basically says that your steam gets less potent as you get older, but yours is still very potent if you can do what I just saw. Yeah. And like Abra runs, but she offers to let him become a true knot. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. she needs to rebuild her ranks. Yep. Yeah. And he says no, but she also at this point reveals that she's not the last, just the prettiest. So there are other. Yeah. Which makes sense, I guess. Like, they might be the only, for lack of a better term, caravan in North America, like, that operate inside North America. But it would make sense that they're in other countries as well, right? Sort of like vampires. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, She nicks his femoral artery. Yeah. Uh, with the axe, he swings it at her and she kind of reverses it on him. Oh, and she like throws him down the stairs from yeah. his leg. Well, and Ugh. she sticks like her finger in it. And so she's extracting steam as he's bleeding out. Oh, yeah, because it's it hurts and he's in pain, right? right. Just like the steam boy from earlier. Right. Yeah. And she's getting in his head and seeing all the people at the Overlook. And she says, you're not alone in there. What are you hiding? And she finds the boxes. Yeah. And she says, oh, you've got something special in here. And he says, they're not special. I love this line, Paige. They're not special. They're starving. He opens all the boxes. And they are all over her. (laughs) Well, and they're like sticking their fingers under the skin of her face. Oof. This was such a cool shot, though. But this does sort of break my heart because like we talked about earlier, like it also sort of goes and like they go after him. Yeah, they go out. They try and eat him, too. Yeah. Meanwhile, Abra's in the hallway and she sees the twins because now everybody's back. Oh, yeah. And she turns and sees Danny walking down the hallway with an axe almost exactly like his father. Well, and his eyes are like the milky, like when when someone is, I don't know if it's possessed, whatever that is that makes him go after Abra. Like that's what's going on. Right, exactly. So she runs into the main room. I mean, he has become his father from the first one. Yes. Which I I think that that's like a really poignant sort of metaphor. Yeah. uh, If you give into sort of, your trauma and stuff you sort of repeat that cycle that probably caused you to have the trauma that you have like i feel like there's a lot of stuff to unpack there and it like a lot of this like really affected me in the biz it's like if you don't deal with it it'll deal with you yeah so first off i demand that you refer to mental health from now on as in the biz that's my (laughs) favorite (laughs) but I, I mean, honestly, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure you deal with it a lot more than I do. But like with my dad passing away in 2017, I realized that like a lot of the, the mistakes that I made in my life, he made in his life, which is why I feel like he's the one that got me to go to therapy. Like he literally came over one night and he was like, you have to go to therapy. You have to like address these issues because they're going to destroy your life. So I feel like he did sort of overcome and he had a really bad like alcoholic father. Like I never met my Mm -hmm. granddad on his side, his dad, because he drank himself to death. So like I do feel like my dad sort of lived through that and like addressed it after my brother died because he didn't go to therapy after my brother died. And like the kind of person he was when I was a kid to like where he was at the end of his life are two completely different people. And I feel like I benefited both from my dad uh, having a really bad dad, like him mm-hmm. having a bad father and made him a, a better father, I think. And all, But largely because he eventually went to therapy. Because when I was a young kid, 
he was not a great dad and he was not a great husband. <laughs> and like, that's the reason my parents, you know, they got divorced and all that stuff. So like, I was like, during this scene, it's like a really sort of tense moment. Cause like, like Avra's getting chased by what is essentially Danny as Jack Torrance. And I'm like crying. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's just like this weird dichotomy of like, like it's hitting me on a, such a personal level that I'm like weeping and stuff. Cause I'm thinking about other things that are not, on screen it was i i was really well done like maybe it was just specifically for the shit i'm going through in my life but i really liked it these are the sections of the movie that i really do like yeah. because because of that emotional weight and metaphor and they're really done well i also love that as abra seeing all these ghosts she's not afraid of the ghost she's afraid of dan and the bathtub ghost tries to like come after her and she just says try it and I'm just like yeah well we see it at the very end of this movie like she starts to handle the ghost like young Danny did yep so like she knows she's got the power to save herself thanks for sharing that but yeah but if you don't deal with your your stuff it like it manifests in ways that you are unprepared for and and weird ways too and that's yeah. not always like I do the same thing that this person did to me but like the cycle that's that cycle is definitely there but like it'll come up yeah. So Dan bursts in and she's like, you're not Uncle Dan. You're the hotel, but he's still in there. And she basically says, you don't know where you're standing. You're in the body of Dan Torrance and you don't know him. And I know that the first place he went was the boiler room. Yeah. And so he goes to swing at her. She stops it and puts her hand on him and is able to kind of bring Danny out. Yeah. And he basically is like, fucking run this place is gonna explode <laughs> and so she does she does he runs to the boiler room to try and shut it off but danny kind of fights it from the inside abra makes it out to the snow in front of the hotel and danny backs away from the boiler basically to let it explode the same thing that jack did in the shining book but mm -hmm. just not in the movie right he sees his mom and then the boiler explodes and the whole hotel burns down. <laughs> yeah, dude, that shot when she's standing outside and you just see the yeah. fire sort of engulf it room by room, which sort of, I didn't know that it was gaslighting. Yeah. But w when you said that, that shot made a lot more sense to me because in my mind, I was like, that's not how a fire spreads because I wasn't thinking like there's gas in every room. And if there's gas in every room, that's very much how a fire would spread. Yeah, it's, tra <laughs> it's traveling along the gas lines. Yeah. So yeah, I, I honestly dig that more now knowing what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we cut to later. She's talking to Danny back in her bedroom and- it seems almost like Danny may have lived, although we're about to find out, no, he a ghost, but that's okay. Yeah, yet again, in another movie, he's become a Jedi Master. Right, right, right. Uh, her mom interrupts to say dinner's ready, and at first she's like, oh, I wasn't talking to anybody, but then she's like, no, I was talking to Dan. Also, we go on after, and everyone's okay, including Dad and the Grandma that we only address for like 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and so she says, I'll, I'll be at dinner in a minute. And she turns and sees the bathroom lady in her bathroom, enters the bathroom and closes the door. And, and that's, that's the, the movie. movie. Having seen the movie, having talked about it, what do you guys think about Dr. Sleep? I, I mean, I can't hold this against Mike, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> I still don't like the True Knots. But here's the thing. Every non-True Knot part of this film is great and so effective that I cry through. I've seen this film multiple times. I cry through it every time. Yeah. Through huge sections of this movie, just like constant sobbing. And so I do think it is really well done. I love the showdown at the Overlook. I know it's problematic and it kind of falls apart plot wise and, you know, whatever. But as as a fan of Kubrick shining, I do like seeing it kind of revived. 
you know, I, I definitely liked it more this time around. It had been a while since I saw it. And I think I remembered more True Not stuff. And then in watching it this time, I was like, OK, it's not as much as I remember. I still don't like that, but like, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I definitely if you're a horror virgin or a Shining fan, it's worth a watch. Oh, and I think and we'll talk about this with Scary Scale. Like, I think as a horror virgin, you could definitely watch this. Yeah. The only thing that was difficult for me from like that sort of perspective and i still don't think it's necessarily horror because you see stuff like this in like psychological thrillers is the steam boy scene the baseball boy scene right yeah 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 that's the scariest part yeah to me but you'll still get scenes like that in like mind hunter which i don't necessarily think is like horror but it definitely is like a thriller the scariest part for me is the mom and the toddler yeah that's pretty that was pretty rough yeah that's fair that's a little more horror because they are ghosts i'll say this i know you have problems with the true knots it didn't bother me i probably because i just don't care that much like i i see that as like oh the movie needs a villain this is an interesting sort of vampiric kind of villain whatever that's fine uh because for me the emotional weight of the story was so good probably just because i've had the issues that i've had in my life that that's all i was focusing on and anytime like a true not member was on the screen i was like all right whatever whatever moves the story forward that's why yeah i love the trauma metaphor i love danny's story of how he like overcomes what happened to him at the overlook and his family i do think the villain would have been more interesting as a singular like anti-danny like as a serial like the trauma hat is is me i am the trauma like like you know like use the metaphor like that and been scary with it I also think that would have made it more horror. Like, if you're going to grant the premise that this is horror, that, what you just said, what you and Paige have been sort of talking about, that could have been much scarier, which I wouldn't have liked. Like, the villain killing Abra's family and, like, showing her in her mind just to mess with her to get her more scared when she finally comes for her or whatever. Yeah. I really do feel like there's some cool stuff they could have done with the kind of powers the knots have, or really anyone who shines has. They could have incorporated those powers into the torture that they do to extract more steam, and there wasn't any of that. But I don't know. Ultimately, I think I, I think I really liked this movie. I and I, you're gonna vehemently disagree with me on this page, but that's okay. I like this more than The Shining. I, I mean, I strongly disagree. That's fair. I knew you would. I knew you would. But also, I saw The Shining first, so I, I'm like, I'm gonna be predisposed anyway. I, I've seen The Shining too, obviously, but I didn't see it till later in life. I wonder if that's it. I wonder if it's like a nostalgic thing for you. No, because I rewatch okay. it pretty pretty frequently, okay. and it All right. it, hold, <laughs> it holds the fuck up. Now, granted, I know there are a lot of people that don't like it. I do understand it is very different from the book for me they kind of exist in separate. Yeah. Like I know they are still the same story, but they, they kind of exist separately. Um, but also when you think about it, the shining is one of the first movies that is that prolonged dread where you're just kind of sitting in it. Mm-hmm. And clearly based on my love of Ari Esther's work, I love that shit. You do. For some reason, I'm like, hey, if you could make a movie where I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack the whole time, but then also I'm like, what do the colors mean? I'm here for it. And that's a hundred percent. That is what The Shining is. So like it gets to a very detail oriented nerd part of me. So I understand that it's not for everybody. It's very much for me and cult podcast host Armando it's one of our shared favorite films yeah I think the reason I don't come back and watch this as much as like The Shining or other things is because the parts of it that really really work for me just make me cry the whole time yeah and then the parts of it that I don't like I really don't like and so there's a part of me that's like 
Do I want to sit and cry? Not today. But there are days where you're like, I could go for a good cry. <laughs> and then by all means, watch Dr. Sleep, if you're me yeah. specifically. <laughs> if you're you specifically. I will say the movie Rocket Man made me cry for very similar reasons. Mm -hmm. I know you said Rocket Man, but yeah. in my mind, I heard the Rocketeer. And I was like, why would you cry She's for that? She's not talking about that. She's talking about the Disney 1996 <laughs> vehicle. I was going to say the same thing, <laughs> the, the Harlan, Harlan Williams, Williams vehicle. Yeah. Where he goes to Mars. Yeah. And it's very emotionally poignant poignant i love that movie. like i unabashedly love that movie no i was referring to the elton john musical biopic oh, rocket man that makes more sense yeah. uh that has a, a ton a ton of addiction and recovery yeah. themes but then also harlan williams makes this guy barf on the gyroscope oh my god todd you've got to watch disney's rocket man i'm on board mikey let me come over we'll double watch it together feature. you can watch both rocket man yes oh my god the double feature we all deserve rocket man yeah. and rocket man yeah, oh my yeah, god yeah, yeah anyway yeah. Paige, maybe we should just get into fun facts let's do it hit us with your fun facts danny fun facts so in the novel The Shining, The Overlook is burned down. So in Dr. Sleep, the True Knot has built one of their campgrounds on where the Overlook once stood. Because it is an evil place. That makes complete sense. It is an evil place. Yeah. Now, in the books, Wendy, Shelley Duvall's character, Danny's mom, Jack's wife, uh, is so badly beaten that she broke an upper vertebrae in her spine. She broke her ribs and her hip trying to escape from Jeez. the overlook. And so in Dr. Sleep, she is actually constantly ill and permanently physically affected by her injuries and basically lives in a lot of pain until she dies. Wow. As opposed to being kind of like up and around. Yeah. As I mentioned, Halloran lived, so he lives and continues supporting the Torrances for a while. He does eventually die, obviously. Now, when it comes to the showdown at the end, because there is no overlook, in the book, Abra is astral projecting a lot. So at the end of the book, she challenges Rose and says that she'll meet at their campground where the overlook once stood. But actually, Dan and Billy go. And before going, Dan loads up with the steam, a.k.a. psychic energy, of Abra's great-grandmother, Concetta. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So as she dies of cancer, he inhales the steam or ingests the steam and uses that energy to kill most of the remaining knot who are already dying of measles. I'll get to that in a second. I'm sorry, what? This, this checks out. This sounds Stephen King. Yeah. Are the true not just like anti-vaxxers? Like, I'm so confused. <laughs> I'll get into it in just a second. Oh, wow. Okay. So Abra pushes Rose over the lookout point where she falls to her death. All of the other main characters survive. And I mean, wow. All. Okay. So they kill a, a, a fair amount of the true not, but everyone else lives everybody okay. so toward the end of the book and i kind of mentioned this at the beginning we learned that lucy stone abra's mother was born out of wedlock and lucy's mother alessandra was jack's student so right. it's yes uh, great grandmother. okay and alessandra dies in a drunk driving accident so we don't really get to talk to her in the book at all yeah and lucy 
Aber's mom was raised by her grandmother, great-grandmother, the one who dies, who gives Dan the vapors to kill everybody. But that's why the great-grandmother is a huge, important character in the book, not just because of, like, how she helps him die, but this explains that Aber and Dan are actually related. He is her uncle, essentially, but he's, like, Lucy's his half-sister, essentially. Um, And, again, that means that Jack probably shined whole thing. Uh, so after they defeat the true knot because everybody lived, Dan continues to work through his trauma and develops relationships with the people who helped him. And essentially in Abra, he finds like a new goal in life to help her avoid some of the pitfalls that he had yeah. shining as a yeah. kid. They also, they like combine two characters. So the doctor who gives him the job and Billy are kind of the same person in the movie. Like, we only see that doctor once, but in the book, they're, like, two separate people, and they kind of serve different things. But uh, part of the reason they find out about Abra is because her parents take her to a doctor who's also in AA. And so that's kind of how everybody... That's, like, the connection? Yeah, kind of. So nearly every character in the story, including Abra and her family, are white. Mm. There are no people of color in the True Knot at all, specifically. All the AA members are mostly described as white. Any inclusion of characters of color, for the most part, is the movie. Okay. Which I prefer. I think that was a good change. Yeah, Mm -hmm. same. But that's going to come up a little bit when we talk about the True Knot a little bit more later. So, in the book... Abra writes her name in Dan's AA meeting notebook, then later on the blackboard in his room, and then gives him her email address, and they begin writing back and forth, and then via email they agree to meet, but it's not because of Baseball Boy. They just agree to meet. Right. To basically, like, meet each other because they, you know, haven't met any other people that shine. Yeah. They have a shine meetup. Right. (laughs) So let's talk about the true knot. Okay. In the book... The True Knot is described as middle-aged and older white couples who dress like retirees driving around America in their RVs, specifically wearing shirts with slogans like, I'm a people person and world's best grandma. (laughs) I sort of love that. Okay. Don't love their inclusion in the story because I think it kind of falls apart. Yeah. But the idea of them being old white people preying on children hilarious yeah (laughs) so funny to me um but their goal is to blend in and they're not sexy or edgy there's not a sexual component to the steam um except for rose with her top hat but she's also described as being in like her late 40s um so they're not like young or good looking they don't have guns they also have varying levels of of psychic powers but it's kind of a darker kind of shine than dan and abra so like It's not necessarily as X-Men as much as it's everyone kind of has similar shining powers. Because even like Rose's powers are similar to Dan and Abra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. So everyone has the same powers. Right. They just have it to different or various levels of power. For the most part. And then there's a handful of people that have other skills like Andy. And that's the only time they ever invite people into the group is if they have a new skill. But they don't often find people with new skills. So... Andy in the book is 32 and has been abused for her whole life by her father. She has a rattlesnake tattoo. That's why they call her snake bite. Um, But her only power is to put people to sleep with her words. And then she cuts V's into their faces. So uh, they needed a new sleeper, as she calls it. 
but after joining, she ends up in a relationship with another member of the Knot uh, named Sari. That's the other thing, too. They don't really explore it in this movie except for making out around the steam. The Knot, there's like a bunch of different relationships within them. So Rose is the leader because of her powers and she makes decisions for everyone. And while the rest have special abilities, or at least they, they all shine, uh, Crow Daddy does not have special abilities. Huh. Yeah. One of the big reasons she keeps him around is because he's in love with her and he'll do whatever she asks. And they are kind of in a relationship, although Rose often has sex with other not members, including Andy, like right after they've just turned. Okay. So, like, she is that was using exactly sex. What I thought mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she's using sex as a manipulation tool. Sure. So, in the book, they hunt down Bradley, baseball boy, and they torture him and feed on his soul. But they don't find out much later that he is poisoned with measles because he wasn't vaccinated. Oh, oh my God. You gotta okay. cook your food, though, like that at 150 degrees. You gotta get that internal temperature of your steam. Well, and also because they were, like, bathing in his blood, so, quote-unquote, their physical forms caught his infection. Wow, okay. So that's why they believe that they need to eat Abra to heal them. Because she's been vaccinated, I guess? No, because she's so powerful. Oh, okay. And, and vaccinated. Yeah. And va- and vaccinated. They would, like, override it. But also, so in the movie, they just kind of breathe in the steam. But in the book, they have, like, a curved tusk that emerges from their mouths to feed. Oh, wild. Okay. That would have been, that actually would have been horror. Yeah. I mean, it would have been fucking freaky, for sure. I think they probably didn't. Yeah know how to do it on screen without it being fucking weird. Sure. Uh, But those are, I'm going to call that our fun facts because that was a lot. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for those fun facts. That's awesome. Um, all right, let's talk box office then. So let me just correct myself because I think earlier I said the movie came out in 2020. It actually came out in 2019 just as I'm looking back over my notes on box office. So what do you think the budget for this movie was back in 2019. This was a big deal movie. I'm going to yeah. say 30. Yeah, I'm going to say 30. Okay. What do you think, Mikey? 35 or 40. Okay, you're a little bit closer. It's actually $45 million. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it is a follow-up to an iconic movie. You're going to want to put money into it cuz it's probably a pretty safe bet. Every cent of that is on the screen, too. This looks like a movie that costs that much money, for sure. Well, I think a lot of that is the work of Mike Filmagnari, I believe is how you say his last name. He's the director for cinematography for this. Mm. He's done a lot of stuff with Flanagan, and all of his stuff is amazing. Anyway, so this movie came out November 8th, 2019, and it was number two in the box office when it came out. It was beat by Midway, and then, of course, it was number two. Number three was Playing With Fire. Number four was Last Christmas, and number five was Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, so what do you think Dr. Sleep made in its first weekend out? Um, Everybody saw this movie when it came out. I'm going to say that first weekend it probably made at least 20. Okay. Mikey, what do you think? I think it made 15. I think this movie did not do well. Mikey, is, oh, I don't think it met expectations, but I think it did fine. But it made $14.1 million in its opening weekend, which I, I could see as being a little bit disappointing if you just sunk $45 million into a movie. But that being said, what do you think it made in its total domestic box office run? I think it made 60. Okay. Mikey, what do you think? I'm going to agree with Paige. I think 60. I think, it did, I think it did 60. Okay. I was a little surprised by this. So it made $31.5 million domestic. Okay, it did bomb. Okay, I thought this bombed. Wow. Yeah, so it, it did bomb. 
And I was looking over uh, sort of its theatrical run. It was in theaters for nine weeks, a little over two months, but it was out of theaters before they started closing for COVID. So COVID did not impact this movie Mm. in theaters. Although there's like three big horror films that like bombed at around the same time. Yeah, this is one of them. Dark Fate came out the same time and also bombed, which don't get me wrong. Dark Dark Fate is a bonkers bad movie, but like it like for a big blockbuster action movie to bomb that hard is pretty wild. Yeah, so just to put it in perspective, since you mentioned Dark Fate and I have the figures right here, yeah. Dark Fate cost $185 million to make, made $62 oh, no. million dollars domestically. Oh, God. But uh. it, Dark Fate did go on to make another $188 million, so it did eventually make a total of $250 million worldwide. But let's talk about Doctor Sleep worldwide because much okay. like Dark Fate, it did better internationally, not as better as Dark Fate, though. International Doctor Sleep made forty point two million. So total, it made seventy one million, almost seventy two is seventy one point eight million dollars in the box office. But for a movie that's this recent to have as good of a home market performance, I think this movie did better in COVID. If that makes sense. Well, I mean, that's that's what I did to it. Yep. So I think Mikey's experience yeah. is a lot of people's experience with this movie because for whatever reason, they didn't catch it in theaters, but they caught it during COVID and it made another $11.3 million in the whole market. And that doesn't include what HBO Max paid for it to be able to stream it on their platform, which I would guess is a few million dollars. Yeah. I don't know what that number is because I can't find it anywhere. But before it was available for free on HBO, it made eleven point three million dollars there so we're talking like 83 million dollars if you add all that up yeah on a 45 million dollar budget it wasn't a bomb in the like money sense but because it didn't make its money back in the domestic box office that's sort of what people look at as it being a bomb so it didn't do great but i think it made money i think it made money and it is a good movie but that is your box office Let's do scary scale. Yeah, hit us with that scary scale, Mikey. All right, scary scale is how scary we found the film when we watched it this time. Our one example is Ghostbusters. Our ten example is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not a scale of quality, but just of how scary we were when we watched it. Or scared, not scary. I mean, that could be a different scale. But, okay, so how scared were you? <laughs> Mikey, you have one job on the podcast, and every week it's different. I have lots of jobs. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> Paige. Uh, I'm going to give this a one. I'm also going to give it a one. What about you, Todd? I'm going to give it a one for me. But I cried a lot. It was very sad. I, but I liked it. It wasn't uh, scary. It's a one. It's a one. Okay, I got it. It's a 10 on the crying scale Yeah, for absolutely. <laughs> it's a 10 on the, is Todd thinking about his dad and how much his dad possibly impacted his life this whole time? And weeping because he misses him scale? That's a 10 for me. But it's also a very specific scale that no one else is going to have. We don't do that scale. Well, that's not a scale that we put on the podcast. No, it's a not. Lot. It's not mass marketable is what they said. <laughs> uh, so that is your scary scale. So, Mike, do you have a review for us to read? Mm. Well, while you're looking up a review, let me tell them how they can have their review read on the podcast. And that is simply to leave us a five-star text review. And, Mikey, will read it. So, Mikey, who's you going to read this week? I'm going to read Team Marie B. All right. What does Team Marie B have to say? I, I like the pun in the title. That's why I chose it. Good horror bowl fun. Oh, wow. I love it. I love it already. They, they went for it. Uh, <laughs> this podcast is my new go-to. I was once a horror virgin like Todd, and now I consider myself to be more of a horror, not connoisseur, but whatever is like right before that. 
<laughs> is that the way? Did he even say the word yeah. like? I love it. Yeah. That's amazing. I love the trio's banter. I love hearing about what's scary for each of them. And I love that there are episodes that blend very serious topics, both in the movies and their own lives. Oh, man, this is definitely one of those. This podcast has helped me revisit old favorite movies and new horror movies, and I now love. Thank you all for this wonderful show, and Mikey, keep writing jokes. It's one of my favorite parts of any show. <laughs> Honestly, any show. Mikey, same. I completely agree with that. Any podcast ever, your Mikey wrote this joke bit is my favorite. That's it. Five stars. Well, thank you so much, Team Marie B, for that awesome five-star review. We really appreciate it. Oh, wait. You know what we didn't do, guys? So this week, you guys made me watch Dr. Sleep. What are you making me watch next week? Next week, we're going to be doing Night of the Living Dead because it's zombie mode. Yeah. Oh, shit. We're doing zombie mode. It's a genre we have not really gone into a lot. You're right. We've only done like two or three. And like two, we've done like two in two years. So, yeah, we've done like 28 Days Later and the Dawn of the Dead remake. That's it. Yeah, that's it. So there's a lot of zombie movies out there we can do. And we've done two of them. So it is something we've overlooked. And I'm glad that you guys have decided we're going to rectify. So well done. Yay. Oh, I honestly think we should do a Romancing the Pod zombie nod and do Warm Bodies. That could be your pick. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> or Shaun of the Dead. Um, <laughs> so guys, your homework for next week is to watch, what movie was it, Mikey? The, the original Night of the Living Dead, like the 60s version. So guys, if you like this show but want to hear this power thruple on another movie review show about romance and romantic comedies, check out Romancing the Pod, where Mikey, Paige, and I break down and make fun of romantic movies. It's a lot of fun, guys. Check it out. If you want to follow us on social, please do. We are at Horror Virgin or online at HorrorVirgin.com. If you want to follow us all individually, you can do that as well. Paige is at Paige Wesley on Twitter or Rampage Wesley everywhere else, including Tim. TikTok. Mikey is at M Randolph 24 and I am at Todd J awesome. If you like the show so much and you want to help financially support it, please do by going to patreon.com slash horror virgin where you can get a lot of great levels and a lot of great stuff like bonus episodes, director's cut episodes where they're a little bit longer and you get them actually a day earlier mm-hmm. than the regular mm-hmm. feed drop. We do a lot of great things like listener requests and stuff like that. So guys check out yeah. the Patreon and help support the show. If you can't financially support the show, that's understandable. That's fine. But if you want to hang out with us on the daily, join the Facebook group uh, at facebook.com slash group slash horror virgin. We also link it like once a week. So just find it there and join the awesome Facebook group. And literally we're in there talking every day. It's awesome. And if you want to check out our Twitch stream, we're at twitch.tv slash Todd awesome. Well, we will be playing horror video games. So if you have always wondered what it would be like to watch me get scared, you can now do that on Twitch while I play these horror games. It's Twitch.tv slash Todd Awesome, guys. Check it out. It's a lot of fun for you. Not a lot of fun for me. This episode was brought to you by Nick B. Nick B, fun fact. Oh, yeah? He likes his tea to be extra steamy when he gets served his tea over there. But like, but he breathes in the steam from the tea very sexually. It's yeah, very strange yeah. to witness. Yeah. Well, Nick T. Nick T. Well, Nick <laughs> T. However you feel like you want to drink your tea, have at it. This episode also brought to you by Ori. Ori. So Ori is amazing. So I was just at my local ashram recently and I saw a flyer that said, if you want to learn how to astral project, come to this class. And and Ori was teaching people how to astral project. I don't know why I thought that would be taking place at an ashram. That's where my mom taught yoga. And I just feel like astral projection and yoga are somewhat related. (laughs) I don't know. It made sense to me. I don't know. Good for yogis. Also, guys, check out ashrams. They're always beautiful, and the Sikhs 
really know how to do yoga, man. And they're awesome. I love Sikhs. I want to do a yoga class at a subway. And then I'd be like, it's hoagies with yogis. Oh, hell yeah, Mikey. But do it at a firehouse because they're better. Well, yeah, but. This episode also brought to you by Brandon's Bug Business. And Brandon's Bug Business is actually called Bug Cage Company on Facebook. So if you have any needs for like spiders, scorpions, centipede, millerpedes, millerpedes, they're like small 100 leg <laughs> animals that bring you Miller Light or any other repede that you might a miller need, check out Bug Cage Company on Facebook and have Brandon ship you some bugs. This episode also brought to you by. The letter Jeff and Jeff wants you to check out his podcast, Kissing Jessica Jones, where each week they break down an episode of the Jessica Jones series. But they've also, since they finished that series, moved on to Agent Carter. So, guys, check out Kissing Jessica Jones, where they break down. I, it seems like there's going to move to uh, other female centric Marvel TV properties, which is cool. I, eventually, at some point, they're going to get to WandaVision. I guess. Yeah, that'd be cool. Sure. Do WandaVision. Anyway, this episode also brought to you by Taco Cat. And Taco Cat wants you to check out his podcast, What Jack Torrance is Shaking at You Drink Wise. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually called What's New Barkeep. Whoa, 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 where each week they talk about super nerdy shit like D&D and super, super nerdy stuff. But they also go into like more pervasive pop culture stuff like, you know, Marvel movies, stuff like that. And they also enjoy a new alcoholic, a beverage. So check nice. out What's New Barkeep. This episode also brought to you by Awesome Possum Blossom. And Awesome Possum Blossom wants me to give you some Awesome Possum facts. So here's one for you. Possums are not found around mountain hotels okay. because okay. all of them are evil and possums can sense it. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. All right. Fact. Moving on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we now return you to another episode of uh, The, the Patrioticals. All right, so on Earth, there's a big showdown. Kids doing psychic stuff. There's robotic koalas and possums and pythons that Eddie's using to try to kill people. Uh, Sasha's pregnant with an evil child. They rule the Earth. Wait, I thought Sasha had given birth already. Yes. (laughs) Yes, she did, and she's... The child's very bad. Like, they're like, we're gonna... It's fine. The child's there, too. Anyway, but they're trying to murder the rest of the... They found uh, Kate and Scott and Evil Matthew and Dave in North America. They're trying to kill them. They have all the robotic stuff around. And uh, Evil Matthew's like, I've seen the face of true evil. And he, you know, shaves off his goatee. And he's like, I'm just regular Matthew now. Yeah, I think that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Did I do that? Did I do that in the next episode too? Yeah, I think uh, maybe you should like write down what happened at least in the episodes. It's hard to do one and then go back. Okay, okay. So evil Matthew, he drops to his knees with a thousand yard stare and tears in his eyes because now he has seen the face of true evil and he just collapses on the ground as koalas kill the population of Earth robotic koalas and they're coming to kill him. Uh, Scott, the thing. Wait, they're robotic koalas? Yeah, now they've, because uh, Sasha and Eddie conquered the Illuminati and have all their technology. Oh, okay. All right. Uh And then uh, Scott's fighting really hard. Dave's fighting really hard. And then Dave is slowly eaten alive by koalas and screams terrible, terrible pain. When you say eaten alive by robotic koalas, that's confusing to me. Do they eat, do they just eat for fun, I guess? They're cyborgs. Oh, okay. So there is still some organic material. That makes sense. I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Isaac is trying to eat the cyborgs, but he chokes on a cybernetic part and dies right there. What? Isaac dies? Yeah, and then Dave runs over to Isaac and 
and kicks him because he's been really mean to him. Yeah, Isaac has been eating a lot of Dave. A lot of Dave. Yeah. He's been a real jerky about it. <laughs> and then uh, a bunch of possums, they grab Dave and they just pummel him to death into a bloody pulp and he dies as well. Wow, okay. Kate throws Scott the thing into a bunch of them and they do that, but Scott, um, he's held down. By a bigger rock, they, they got a flying submarine drops a giant mountain on top of Scott. And I'm sorry, a giant submarine jumps, drops a mountain on top of Scott? Like a lot of big, a big rock, a big, big rock. So Scott, who is a rock personified, uh-huh. is crushed to death by a rock. That is like, that should be a lyric in an Alanis Morissette song because it's super ironic. They drop a giant piece of paper on him as well. <laughs> and then scissors, just giant scissors. Yeah, yeah. well, paper beats rock. Oh, wait, maybe that's how they rescue him later. <laughs> okay, so, and then Kate is, she's exhausted. She drops, she can't do her psychic stuff, and Sasha murders her brutally with a, with a gun. Okay. All right, so who's left at this point, Mikey? So now you cut to the middle of the galaxy. Oh, okay, where, that's who's left. <laughs> uh-huh, where uh, Amy's flying the spaceship, and Danielle, queen of the moon, and um, Tristram is part of the spaceship. And Domosaurus and Karun are on there. They come to the center of the galaxy and they meet the god of that galaxy, which is Mikey, me. And <laughs> I am, it's me. I am God. I am, I the, am god. the god of the Patreonicals. <laughs> and uh, I immediately uh, smite Karun just because it it's funny. Anyway, as a group, they collectively are like, everything's gone really wrong in the Patreonicals and we don't know what to do. And I was like, I'll fix it. And so you lift your hand to reveal a glove with five. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I just clap my hands a lot. And then they it all, everything <laughs> turns black. And that's the end of the episode. I do love that in order to not get sued by Marvel, you couldn't snap. So you just changed the <laughs> the thing that resets the world is you giving yourself a round of applause for what you've done on the Patreonicals for like two years. Yeah. Uh, and everything cuts to black. And I don't have, there's no power infinity stone, so it's not the same thing. I'm just a god. Yeah, don't sue me, Stanley. Mm. Well, I guess next week we'll find out what happens or doesn't happen with the Patreonicals. That's going to be it for us, you guys. I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. And I'm your horror virgin, Todd. Keep it ooky spooky. Yeah. Have an amazing week. Bye, shining nerds. <laughs>